get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. Get ready for winter driving at Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers with super deals on tires, including up to $200 on new Goodyear tires, plus oil changes, brakes, batteries, and more. For value and savings, click on GoToDobbs.com today. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Montreal Canadiens, you don't want points. <laughs> Here's Tarasenko. Near wing, Butchnevich, he scores! Pavel Butchnevich with a ripper of a slap shot. And the Blues have taken a 2-1 lead with a minute 19 to go in the third. Our circle, shot deflected through, they score! Canadiens have tied it up with 8.7 seconds to go. Caulfield was left all alone on the back door. Nobody marked him, and a wide-open net to tie it for Montreal, 2-2. Two two. They bring it in on Falk. They drag to the middle. They shoot, and they score. And the Canadiens beat the Blues in overtime by a 3-2 score. Oh, boy. That's what it sounded like right here on 101 ESPN last night with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. We are live from the ENB Granite Studio at the Centene Community Ice Center. This is actually what it sounded like last night. Oh, come on. Come on. Yeah, that's a game you just can't lose, man. Montreal had lost 10 straight. They have one home win since Thanksgiving, Alex. Oh, that's They that's were one 12 and 4 since Christmas. Oh, man. Coming into last night's no. game. And what did the Blues do? Well, they put 13 shots on net total the first two periods. They committed five of the first six penalties. If you want to say that's on the refs, that's fine. Some of them were legit calls, though, and the Blues were not skating, and that tends to be where you get those kinds of penalties. Alex, I'm going to get to you here in just a second. Oh, but first, let's go back to Chris oh, Kerber. Okay, Kanye. Who said that was just flat-out embarrassing last night. Anything short of we're a little embarrassed right now, I, I think is excuse-making. I, I, I just look at this one, and, and I sit there, and and I'm stunned, to be honest with you right now. You can no longer use the excuse of rest of the break. You can't use the excuse of injuries. Too many guys on this team are healthy. You can't use the COVID testing as an excuse. They're no longer getting tested every day. I, I frankly, at this point, think that you've played enough games in empty buildings that that's no longer something that deals with the energy level, in my opinion. This was just a game where I think what was missing was just attitude. Attitude and swagger. It's hard to argue with them there. I mean, for me, and I know it's going to come off as an excuse, but the officials did suck the life out of the game. I mean, when you have, what was it, seven power plays on top of that, you add in four more penalties to where it was four-on-four hockey, you get nothing going. And in an already difficult situation, it sucked the energy out of the game. But that should be no excuse for this Blues team because you are better than the Montreal Canadiens. They just traded away their top goal scorer. Pretty much their entire roster is on long-term injury reserve. 
and you were going up against a goaltender that had lost two straight games and a goaltender who had never played against you again. That that seems to be a problem for the Blues this season where they face a goaltender who they've never played against. This was uh, like the crafty lefty the Cardinals, for the Cardinals. lefty. Uh. Yes. That's exactly what it was. And I had a stat back when they played. There was a span where they went up against Jake Ottinger and Alex Nedeljkovic, and they were losing those games. Those aren't real people. They're real people. I can (laughs) promise you that. You just can't pronounce them. But you can pick areas if you want to be the optimist, which I know T-Bone does because he wants to live longer. But there are none because big picture here, you just lost to a team that had eight wins on the season. And Curbs is right embarrassing is really the only way that you can look at it. It was an ugly loss. You had zero power play goals where you had two full power plays in the final portion of the game, and you didn't score on either of those. So you can't make the argument on that one. Your penalty kill was great, but defensively, you did allow a lot of scoring chances. You allowed 30 shots on goals. So this one is frustrating. I'm hoping that the frustration and the anger from losing to this team carries over into Saturday's game against the Maple Leafs. But for me, BK, this is right up there with the Arizona Arizona Coyotes loss earlier this season where you were taking on a bad team and you had no life. Yeah, I don't want to hear anything more about the situation in Canada and how that's playing into the Blues issues when they go up into these arenas. I, I, I'm done with it, man. I'm so beyond done with it. Here's the teams that went up into Canada and beat the hell out of Montreal since Christmas, Alex. Buffalo, Columbus, Washington, Columbus did it again, New Jersey, Anaheim. If all of those teams can go up there and they can figure it out and they can create their own energy so that way they get two points when they go up against the worst team in the league, then I'll be damn sure that the Blues should be able to do that. They had their best goalie in net. They are completely healthy right now. I understand there are two guys on the ice with Barbie and Kairou who clearly aren't at 100%, but you've got enough to be able to beat the hapless Canadians last night. And for them to come out with the lacking that much energy, Kerber's right. It was embarrassing. And they know that. The coach knew that after the game. The, uh, nobody's going to try to explain away or excuse away what took place last night. They all know they need to be better. The problem is that they weren't. And, Alex, after the game, here's what Craig Berube had to say about his big picture thoughts on the loss. Each individual on a team has to be accountable to the play, his play. And... Um, We need more guys, in my opinion, that have to play better. Do we have some guys that just are aloof out there right now and um, aloof with the puck and just a little bit casual? Um, We need everybody on board to to do the right things and play the right way. Yeah, I mean, him calling out, and he's not calling out players, he's calling out the team, although he did say there are some, some players. Look, there were too many turnovers in that game. Again, I mean, you're giving up all of these chances to Montreal and you're letting teams feel like they're still in these hockey games by just turning the puck over and being aloof, as Craig Berube called it. Now, you look at some individual numbers here. Braden Shen didn't have a shot on goal. Now, Braden Shen had three hits. He had a blocked shot. He played 17 minutes and 19 seconds of ice time, but he was a minus two. Got to have better performance in that one. Brandon Saad. Brandon Saad didn't have a shot on goal. 15 minutes and 53 seconds. That's an area I'm really surprised by. And far be it for me to question a team that has the second best power play in the National Hockey League. Brandon Saad is the most power play goals on your team, and he is not on either of your power play units. 
I understand Ivan Barbashev was on a hot streak, but I'd be looking at Brandon Saad yeah. going back on the power play unit because he parks his you-know-what right in front of the goaltender's face. But albeit from that, Ivan Barbashev, Jordan Cairo, those two are difficult because I do think they're reeling with something right now. But the other portion of what Craig Bruby's talking about, being too loose with the puck and too aloof with the puck, there's a lot of puck watching in that game last night. It felt like the guys were sitting there waiting for the play to come to them rather than making the play happen. And I think that's where Craig Bruby's getting at. Again, hard to do that when you're on the penalty kill so much, but it's not an excuse because you have to take advantage. Three on three is a perfect example. We talk about how this team has speed, and all they did was just skate it in circles. I mean, Colton Pareko, when the puck is on his stick, he should be going from north to south and nobody can stop him. We've seen it. Curbs mentioned this. He took the puck out of his behind his net and then just circled back around. Now, I know you're waiting to get a line change. I hate three-on-three because all it is is you're just waiting for an opening, but you got to be more assertive. He he had a rough game the whole night, too. He 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 had had been playing so much better. That's what's so frustrating about it. The previous two he was, Chicago and Ottawa. He was excellent. He looked like the Colton Pareko, the vintage Pareko that we've been expecting all year. And then for him to have such a, a relapse almost in his performance last night, it was so frustrating to watch. And, Alex, this is where it gets to... How does this continue to happen? Because it feels like the Blues play down to their competition more than you would like them to. Now, it hasn't cost them in terms of the points as often as you would expect. I went back last night and looked at their performance against all the teams that they've played so far this year that are under 500 in terms of their record. It's actually significant. They're 7-2-2 against those teams, so they've gotten points in 9 of the 11 games that they've gone up against the teams that are at the bottom end of the spectrum in the NHL. So they've actually performed pretty well in these games, as you would expect them to, in terms of the win-loss record. That is not reflective of their performance, though, in a lot of these games. Too many of them have been really close, really late, where they've got to stave off a potential extra man advantage, just as we saw last night, to be able to be able to get at least one point, potentially two, in those games. How does this keep happening, though, Alex? Why why do they seem to play down to their competition? And it's another trend that we've seen of them getting off to a really sluggish start. Last night, they had to play extraordinarily well in the third period, to be, to be able to get one point out of that game, much less getting to overtime. Well, and especially in another trend was the second period. This is a period that the Blues are usually yeah. the best at. I think statistically, their goal differential, they are the best at the third, second period. And they got, I mean, again, penalties, but they had four shots on goal. You got to be better than that situation. For me, and I was thinking of this last night during our post game because Curbs was with me and we were talking about how, you know, the leaders have to find a way to get these guys going. And I was driving home. And let me preface this by saying I am no way, shape, or form saying that the Blues have bad leaders in terms of O'Reilly and Shen and things like that. But I do think it's an area of concern. How many games this season have we sat on these airwaves and said, boy, they look like they had no energy last night? How often have we texted during a game saying, boy, where's the life in this team? Too many is the answer. If you look at teams like Colorado, Toronto, Pittsburgh, Washington Teams that are favorites, if not teams in the discussion of winning a Stanley Cup. I would I would bet you, and a lot of people don't watch all of those games, but I would bet you you watch a majority of their games or all of their games, you wouldn't be saying that an awful lot. I feel like we've said it maybe 10 times this season. Arizona Coyotes lost. The Anaheim Ducks lost comes to mind. The New Jersey Devils comes to mind. This one definitely comes to mind. I feel like too often this season... We look at a team that says, man, they have incredible goal scoring. Defense is a concern. Goaltending is a concern. But they can win games with their speed and their talent. 
but too often we sit here and say, ah, they're just too slow out of the gate, or man, they just don't have enough energy. You got to rely on your leaders in the locker room to get guys going. In a circumstance like this where there's nobody in the building, where you know it's going to be a quiet game, you got to rely on your leaders to make sure everyone is ready to go. Uh, The Florida Panthers are a great example of this. They were on an extended break like everyone was. And what did they do out of their extended break? They've won every game since on a road trip. That's where the Blues need to be. They have to find a way. You ask what's going on here, how do they fix this? This is more in the locker room than it is on the coaching staff. I think this is more on just individual players and as a group to look at it and say, okay, this game is not going to benefit us. It's Montreal. They stink. We're in an empty building. We have no energy. We all hate Canada. But let's – sorry, Jamie Rivers. Playing in Canada. (laughs) But let's get our heads out of our you-know-whats and let's get started quick because all we need to do is score two goals on Montreal. If we score the first two goals, we put this team out of their misery because they're not going to be fighting back in this one. But the problem was you let Montreal score the first goal. You score to tie it. You take the lead, but it was the final minute and a half of the game. Montreal's looking at it as like, man, we still got a chance at this one. Pull the goalie, we're in got to have that killer mentality what Doug Armstrong's talked about, but I think for me that resides on your leaders in the locker room to make sure that these guys are ready to go for games that don't favor them. Yeah, and we got a text from the 573. Guys, can we discuss the dynamic with no fans last night that was totally the cause of the loss against Montreal? Again, I am sick of hearing about these excuses. This is not an explanation anymore. It was last year. It was in the bubble. I'm with you, Alex. There were there were moments where I was like, okay, I can listen to this. Yeah. Eventually, though, you got to be able to overcome some adversity. And if you're going to be a team that, unlike Buffalo and Columbus and Washington and New Jersey and Anaheim, all of whom were able to go into Montreal and get the job done. If you're not going to be able to do that against Montreal, and by the way, this was not a one-off. Last week, we saw this happen as well at home against New Jersey when the team just didn't come out with any energy whatsoever against a lesser opponent. If you're going to allow that to happen twice in the span of seven days, there are some legitimate questions to be asked there as to why. Why is this happening? And thank God Villejuso was in that last night, man. That could have broken Jordan Bennington. That's why I'm glad we didn't put Bennington in. Because Bennington would not have performed, in my opinion, as well as Huso did. He kept you in that game for two periods. Without him being in there and he made some big-time saves, you might have lost that game like 5-1, to 5-2. to two. Instead, Huso was able to keep you in it, and you had an opportunity to be able to potentially win the game in regulation, and then, of course, you at least got the point out of it. I, I just don't understand. I, I don't understand why they continue to come out this flat. I don't know if it's a leadership issue. I don't know if this is a they just don't have the same fire in the I, I don't know. I, I, I can't explain it, man. Maybe this is just the dog days of you're midway through the season. I know we've talked about this with Mike McKenna. We've talked about it with Joey where you kind of get to this post all-star break and it's like, okay, yeah, this time of the year sucks. You're looking at the uh, the trade deadline. That's ahead of you. You've still got, what, two and a half months left in the season, and you're just you're kind of wishing this time away to get to the postseason. Yeah, Joey even said it on the broadcast with Curbs last night because Curbs asked him, like, what are you thinking when you're a player in this circumstance? You look up, there's nobody here. You're playing a team that's bad. They're not going anywhere anytime soon. And Joey said, honestly, you're thinking about getting on a plane and getting out of there. But he's like, the focus is, well, you got to get two points. Yeah. That's the internal battle right now that this team's got to find to uh, find a way to to grind their way through. 
And, you know, everyone will go back to, oh, well, they had a Petrangelo and Bowmeister and Maroon when they won the Cup when they did it. Yeah, but their backs were also against the wall where they knew if they wanted to go anywhere, they had to win. You know right now you got to win, but you're also sitting in a playoff spot. So it's kind of juggling these these hard times right now in the middle of the season. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Final thing here. Guys, it's a one-off. That was one game. They're fine. They would be tied for the Pacific Division lead right now. The game sucked last night, but throw out that tape. This is not Armageddon. I agree. Blues are a really good hockey team. Oh, you're an optimist, sir, madam. L- later today, we're going to talk about what they can add to potentially continue to be a Stanley Cup contender. Oh, yeah. Chris Pronger. Wait. This is not Armageddon. This is not the end of the world. They're going to be A-OK. However... There are some concerning trends that have taken place over the course of their last seven games, and really eight, because I'm going to include that Vancouver game that they had no business winning but found a way to come come away with the victory. Are you going to advanced analytic me? No, but they've now lost four of their last seven, should probably be five of their last eight. This was not a complete one-off. It was not exclusively because of the fans. It's because they're not playing well right now. And they've got to change that against Toronto where they're going to get their butts whipped because that's a really good team that you're going up against in Toronto. And I'm excited to see what they look like tomorrow night. That's going to be a big test. Typically, they respond in these situations. I'll be curious to find out what it looks like against a very good opponent. We'll talk that over with Mike McKenna, including who he thinks the Blues should start in net tomorrow night against Toronto. We'll do that coming up at 1130. Coming up at 115, we'll be joined by Kylie McDaniel, who wrote yesterday that his comparison for Nolan Gorman would be Max Muncy. We'll talk to him about that coming up in the 1 o'clock hour. But coming up next, Alex, some big news in college football yesterday. Or excuse me, late, earlier today. They're going to stick with the 14 playoff. Do you like the decision? Did Cincinnati play into this decision? We'll talk about that all coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Call it football. Big news today. They're sticking with the four-team playoff. Oh, that's horrible news. I'm confused by it, Alex. I got to be honest with you. They, they could have made a ton more money if they decided to expand this thing, and they decided against it. So after months of lengthy debates and multiple meetings about the expansion, the College Football Playoff Committee announced today they will stick at four teams through the end of their 12-year contract with ESPN. This is going to end this part of the speculation, Alex. It will continue coming up in 2026. That is when this contract ends. So you got like five more years left of the four-team playoff. I'm surprised by it because typically you follow the money. And when there is more money available to college football playoff, uh, college football team, college football programs, they typically go after that. And that is uh, that includes like... Uh, conference realignment. Mizzou went to the SEC. Why? Because there was more money involved there. Um, you see teams jumping ship from the Big 12 right now, like Texas and Oklahoma. Why? Because they can get more money elsewhere. I wish that they would have expanded this. I wanted to see more teams have an opportunity to play in the college football playoff. I do wonder, though, how much seeing the semifinal games right now were the average margin of victory so far in the college football playoff is 21 points, and you saw Alabama beat the heck out of Cincinnati 27-6 to this year. Yeah, take that, T-Bone. When you see these kinds of results now with a four-team playoff in the semifinal, 
I wonder how much that plays, Alex, into their decision to keep it at four. I, I wonder, too, because I remember after we had the expanded postseason in baseball with that shortened season, and do you remember what all of us were saying afterwards? Exactly. Oh, God. Don't bring this back because some of those teams were just awful to watch in that. The bubble play was like that also. You got a couple of extra teams that got in. I remember Chicago got into the playoffs, and they got bounced in the first round, and I'm like, ooh, what's going on here? So I I, I do wonder if that had some to do with it. It's still frustrating, though, because in terms of entertainment value, I think the entire regular season would have been a lot more enjoyable knowing that there were more teams that could get into the postseason for college football. And on top of it, I was telling you before our show prep, it, I, I'd, be, I'd be invested in those games like that Cincinnati game. It's like I, I was fully invested in the first half. But as soon as the game is just a, a butt kicking, I turned it off. And that's probably what the college football committee said. Like, it's not worth it to us when teams are going to get this shellacked. But the investment is still there for me, at least through the regular season and the first half. So it's frustrating. I think it's more frustrating knowing that we have to wait four more years before we get to find yeah. out if it expands. Yeah, that, that's where I'm kind of at with it. we got to wait four more years till it expands because I, I, I do believe that the college football playoff does need to expand because I, I get it. Cincinnati got beaten. We're dominated by Alabama. But honestly, a lot of other teams have been dominated in the past in the college football playoff semifinal. So it's not like it's a non-power five or non-group of five issue. It, it's just the that's the way the playoff has worked out. I truly believe that if you expand the playoffs over time, not saying in the first year or two of an expanded playoff, that we'll kind of see a little bit more of competitive balance kind of start to leak its way into college football just a little bit because then more teams can sell recruits on the fact of the matter that, hey, you can come to us, we're kind of a blue blood program still, and we got a shot to get into the college football playoff, and your non-power fives can sell that too to some kids as well. I mean, Cincinnati's got a hell of a coach in uh, – uh, Luke, uh, what's his last name? Fickle. Fickle, thank you. Uh, they've got a hell of a coach there in Cincinnati, and he could recruit if he could convince kids that he can get into the college football playoff. So I truly believe that. Maybe I'm just too much of an optimis- optimistic person on that sense of the competitive balance kind of equaling out just a little bit more if you can expand to like six to eight teams and a non-power five can get in. But I- I'm disappointed that we don't get to see it because I thought six was going to be the perfect number, and I thought we were going to see it this year. And I'm with UBK. It just doesn't make sense why they wouldn't do it. I'm going to do a quick little experiment with you guys. Say oh, it, the say gross. it aloud test, okay? okay? You guys tell me if the, any of the uh, – if, t- if you believe these programs to either currently or historically to be blue blood programs, okay? Tell me if you – just yes or no. Alabama. Yes. Blue yeah. blood program, right? Mm-hmm. Clemson. Yes. Yeah. Ohio State. Yeah. Oklahoma. Yes. Georgia. Yes. Notre Dame. Yeah. LSU. Yeah. Oregon. Yeah. Florida State. Yeah. Michigan State? No. Uh, They're like, I would say no. I'd, I'd have them the on the cusp of it. Right? Yeah, I'd have them on the cusp of it. Washington? No. No. God, no. Cincinnati? Yes. No. No. Okay. I tried. In Michigan. I wish. Michigan. Michigan, yes. yes. In the history of the college football playoff, which now dates eight years, you've had three teams that aren't blue blood programs make it. Three. And those teams are Michigan State, Washington, and Cincinnati. Cincinnati's the outlier, of course. We just saw that this year for the first time. Washington's been a really good program for quite a while now. Michigan State has historically, over the last 20 years or so, they haven't been a blue blood, but... They're probably as close to a blue blood as you can get without actually entering that tier of program, right? The reason why I would like to see the college football playoff expand is because I think it includes more programs' fan bases. 
like a team like Mizzou or Illinois right now, even in the best of years, not getting into the college football. Illinois playoff. gets four wins. It's, Does it's Illinois just, have a fan base? It's just not a realistically attainable goal for you. But if you expanded this thing, for example, this year, Baylor was listed at number seven. Ole Miss was at number eight. Oklahoma State was at number nine. Utah was at number 11. If you expand this thing to six or eight programs, suddenly that becomes an attainable goal for teams that are not blue blood programs. And that's why I think it's worthy of getting out and expanding it. Do I think that those teams are going to win the college football playoff? No, but I didn't think this year Cincinnati had a chance to win the college football playoff. And they were in it, and it made it more fun for us to be able to watch going into it. It may end up resulting in some blowouts early on. We're already getting those. We might as well at least include a few more programs, make the season more interesting for those fan bases. So that's kind of where I fall on this. I'm disappointed that they decided not to expand, and I'm looking forward to the conversation that we'll have in 2027 together, Alex, as we talk about when they decide to go ahead and expand the college football I eat a lot of cake. We talked about this. I don't do the healthy living, so I might not be here. It's 11.30. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. Coming up at 11.45, it is Friday, which means that it is time for Ask Us Anything. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line for Ask Us Anything. But coming up next, Mike McKenna, former NHL goalie. I want to get his thoughts on why he thinks the Blues seem to have this issue with coming out flat, especially against lesser opponents. We'll do that and ask him who he would start in net for the Blues tomorrow. Mike McKenna joins us next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It is BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN, the very different segment than questions and answers. Ask us anything. It's oh. coming up here in about 10 minutes Anything. or so. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line to get involved in those. But right now, I am always happy to go out to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line to be joined by our friend Mike McKenna, the former NHL goalie, now NHL analyst for the Daily Faceoff. Mike, we always appreciate the time, my man. How you doing this morning? I'm good. If I can ask you guys anything, I want to lead off right with that. And I want to know, what is the airspeed of an unladen swallow? Um... You, sir, did not just speak English. I know you say <laughs> that you did, but that was not a question that was termed to us in English, and I don't speak French. You sir. know, you know, Mike, Somebody, I know that it's here's argu- the thing. Somebody out there listening is going, that's from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and they're asking, is it an African or a European swallow? I thought maybe you guys would pick up on it. I stumped you. I'm going to be honest Friday with you. Morning. Let's roll. I have that's never a good way to start. seen Monty, Monty Python. Moment of truth for me. I've never seen Monty Python in the Holy Grail. You know, Mike, I I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken by uh, by this, I think it's around 24 miles per hour or 11 meters (laughs) per second. Just Uh throwing that out there. It's an acceptable answer for speaking of a European swallow. The, oh the, the, the only quote that line. I know from that is, uh, "Tis but a flesh wound." That that is the one that I would recognize. That's from Rocky. <laughs> it's from Rocky. Okay. Well, it's similar, a, li- a little. Mick different. said that to Rock after uh, Clubber Lang. Come on, man, get, get those better. Mike, uh, <laughs> let's start out with this. Speaking of flesh wounds, the Blues had one last night. That was an ugly, yeah. ugly performance in Montreal. Nice transition. Can, can you explain to me why does it seem like the Blues, of late at least, 
seem to be playing down to their competition a bit, and especially last night, but it's, it's been a little bit of a trend. They seem to be getting off to really slow starts in some of these games. Do, do you have anything that you can put your finger on as to why? You know, if we're looking for the greater trend for this, it's hard to say because you have seen it. The Blues have been slow to start, and I think Billy Husso's bailed them out a decent amount of times this year. Early in the season, Bennington did. It has been something that the team needs to be better on, no doubt about it. But I think really last night's game was kind of a culmination of going into Canada and playing against clubs where you're not seeing fans in the building. And I know it's only two games, but they they went into Ottawa, they rolled Ottawa, but there's no fans, there's no atmosphere. And then you come into Montreal and it's kind of one of those trap games where you're trying not to look past that to Toronto tomorrow night. You know, you're thinking, well, maybe we can sleepwalk through this one a little bit against Montreal. Well, no, you can't. It's still the NHL. It just didn't feel like there was any vibe in the building. And Montreal's been used to that as bad as they've been. It felt like the Blues have, didn't know how to handle that. And, and I think kind of that goes the other way, even for those Canadian teams. There was a stretch where I thought Toronto, when they lost their fans at home and when they went on the road, just didn't look good because they didn't know how to handle the moment with fans again. So I think that kind of plays into it a little bit for me. Um, I'm not really sure if that's going to play tomorrow night against Toronto, but especially last night, I think if we just look at it on the micro level, that's what it is to me, but man, they got to start better and they got to push the pace. Like the best thing that can happen for the blues isn't necessarily to score early. It's to, it's to create power plays early, to be hard on teams and, and try to force a chance to be, to, to take the game to them. You know, that didn't happen. The Blues were in the box right away last night. Four minutes in, Bortuzzo's in the box. And then they're in the box two more times in the first period. That's not a recipe for winning hockey, especially on the road. You know, Mike, I mentioned this at the open of our show, and it's a a concern, but it's not an area that I feel like is an area that's really going to continue to bother this team. But, you know, you look at the trend this season and they have played down to those those teams but even against top teams it feels like we look at the game and we're like man there's no energy there's just no there's no push from this blues team now maybe they get it in the second or third period but they don't start off that way and it usually comes back to bite them is that from a player's perspective is that more just in the locker room of just guys just not being ready to bring that energy right away somewhat but i you know i also think it's just a factor of how the Blues of how many different line combinations have we seen for the Blues this year? A lot, realistically, Pretty right? Much every other game, it is, and that's not that's not on Craig Berube. That's on situations. You know, like you've got players in and out with injury with COVID. It's been a crazy year like that. I think that matters when you step out on the ice and you've got three players that you can start the game with that you know what you're going to get. They're going to get the puck into the offensive zone, lay a couple of hits, try to get a shot on goal, and force the issue. The Blues, to me, haven't had that go-to line, that go-to three players all season long that they can do that with. And, and I'll give you a great reference point on this because it covered the Vegas Golden Knights for two years, but I think of how Pete DeBoer would start games with Ryan Reeves, Tomas Nosek, and Will Carrier, fourth-line guys, but you knew what you were getting right off the bat. The and they were had good that at in their the cup job. run. Right, and yeah, so that that's where... Changed. Yeah, and that's where I'd like to see you know, the Blues hopefully have some continuity in their lines and be able to have a group that you know will go out there and get you possession right off the bat and then have a follow-up shift. It's not just about the first shift. It's about what you do after that. Try to push the pace. Try to grab a shot on goal. Try to get the other team to chase and get in the box. 
that's mattered. But it is in the room. I mean, you you have to look to your teammates and say, we've got to start better. You know, we've got to go right from the beginning here and get your legs going. That's sometimes a chore on the road. But, I mean, the Blues are capable of it. They just haven't seen it consistently enough this year. We're talking to Mike McKenna, former NHL goalie, joining us here on BK and Ferrario. It's interesting you mentioned that, Mike, because I did want to ask you about the combinations is there one combination, and I, I'm not trying to put you into Craig Burby's shoes, but is there one combination you've seen this year that you've really liked? Because for me, the, the one that I saw that I was like, oh, I, I kind of like the way that that looks, was Brandon Saad with Robert Thomas and then either Kairou or Tarasenko. I think either could work on that right wing. But I, I really liked the, the way that that worked because you've got Saad who goes to the front of the net. You've got a shooter in either Tarasenko or Kairou. And then you got Thomas who's just a, a, a tremendous, tremendous distributor of the puck is there a combination that you've seen that you think maybe oh okay that could be the go-to line i i have a hard time seeing Kyrie and thomas split up that's the hard one for me and whoever you put with those two you can expect them to be up and down the wing but they have such chemistry together and i know they can play power play but the ice is so much wider with them on the ice and the game's so much faster and i think the blues have the depth to be able to spread out and let those two play together when you want um you know, the thing about the Blues is that they've got so much strength on the right side. Kairou, Tarasenko, Perron, like, and, and there's a lot there. You know, even Sunquist can play that side. So uh, I think that it's kind of finding that combination. You know, like, where's David Perron fit in right now with the club? You know, he, it's almost like he's fallen down the pecking order when I'd like to see him going again. I'd like to see him back with Ryan O'Reilly. But where does that leave Tarasenko? So, it is a tough mix like that. I, I really think that Thomas and Kyrie together, and man, I really liked when the, the three Russians were playing together. I liked Bushnevich, Barbashev, and Tarasenko together. I know you could call that maybe a third line, but I don't think that's the case. I think that the Blues could roll three lines almost with, with even numbers and even amount of time on the ice and have strength to it. So um, I'd like to see Perron back with O'Reilly. I'd like to see Kyrie and Thomas together at all times. Um, and wherever Saad and Shen fit in that mix, I love Saad's game. I love what you said about him going to the front of the net, um, but he's versatile. He can fit in wherever it is. Mike, um, Frank Saravalli, your coworker with Daily Faceoff, you know, he kind of set St. Louis ablaze a couple of days ago with the reports of the Blues possibly being interested in Claude Giroux. And I'm not going to ask you about trade speculation, but what, what, what I do want to find out is you played with Claude Giroux, if I'm not mistaken, for a short time when you were in mm-hmm. Philly. What kind of player is he, and do you feel like the Blues are lacking defense, but do you feel like a guy like Claude Giroux could help this team? Well, Claude Giroux can help any team in terms of his production and the leadership he brings in and experience, but I don't know where he fits within the Blues team, especially at full health, because again, Giroux has really played on the right side for the last several years, more than he has down the middle at center. And the Blues have plenty of players on the right side. And they're pretty stacked down the middle, honestly. Like, I don't see Claude Giroux coming in to be a fourth-line center or even a third-line center. You know, are you going to push Barbashev down to the fourth line? I, I don't see that either. I'm not sure the fit from a perspective of the personnel of the Blues. Now, the coaching staff, Barube, clearly that'd be a good fit. And, I, and he would help wherever you slot him. But I don't know how much better he would make the team. I think you'd almost be putting a square peg in a round hole. Now, defensively, that's where I think, yes, the Blues are going to need more depth there. I, you know, when I watch Jake Wallman, man, I just think he's right on the edge. I love how he skates. I think 
man, something's good is going to happen here. And you get to the blue line, you get to the red line, and the puck gets lost and nothing happens. You know, I, I keep waiting for that breakout game. Maybe he's not quite ready for the big stage in playoffs. You hope he is, but you start looking at left-handed defensemen that are potentially available from Chikrin to Sherratt to Giordano. I don't think Chikrin's going to be available for the Blues. I think it's going to be way too high of an asking price, so I think you're looking maybe at a Sherratt or a Giordano that could slide in effortlessly. Um, I would really like that for the club. I think that would help the, t- the depth. I think it would also help insulate Miko Mikola. If you get to playoffs and Mikola just isn't able to perform up to what you expect, you can move him down in the lineup if necessary. You can factor in those more experienced shutdown defensemen that can still move the puck. Let's not forget Giordano led the league in D scoring a couple of years ago, was a Norris winner. He can still play. So I think there's options out there for GM Doug Armstrong. It's just going to be at what price and who's the best fit on the back end. Final question that I've got for you, Mike. Who would you start in net tomorrow night? I thought for sure when when the Blues were up late in that game last night, I was like, oh, you just you go back to Ville Husso because he played an outstanding game. He was the one that was able to keep you in it, and you were able to get the win, and he, he really kind of pulled that one out for you. Then they lose, and I was like, I, I don't know. Maybe you do go back to Jordan Bennington and see if he can get you going against Toronto. What would you do in net tomorrow night? Well, here's the things that are play. It's in Toronto. Where's Jordan Bennington from? That's right. Toronto. Yep. So, you know, you have that factored in, but I'm not sure how much the sentimentality of things are going to go into Craig Berube's decision on who starts. And right now, it's Billy Huso's net. And I think a perfect opportunity for Bennington to play comes up in the next three games afterwards. You've got Philly, Buffalo, Chicago. You can let Bennington play any of those games. You can hope that he grabs some confidence in those games, maybe even play two in a row. I think this is an opportunity again for Huso tomorrow night. I think when you're going against one of the best teams in the league, you're going to have to play your best goaltender. I didn't mind his game last night. I thought Huso was good. I couldn't fault him for uh, either of the goals that ended up going in in the last well minute, minute and a half of the game as quickly as that was over. Um, I think you run him again, especially because travel's easy. Ottawa to Montreal to Toronto, that's not difficult travel. I think you play Huso tomorrow night. And then I think over the next week, that's your chance. You get Bennington in, whether it's one or two games out of those next three. I'd love to see him play against Philly. Uh, and then either the Buffalo or the Chicago game. Give Huso a little bit of a rest there, too. I think it would work well that way. He's Mike McKenna. Always appreciate him joining us on Fridays. Former NHL goalie, now an analyst for the Daily Faceoff. Give him a follow on Twitter, at Mike McKenna 56 Mike, we always enjoy having you on, man. Enjoy your weekend, and we'll talk with you again next week. Sounds good. Can't wait till next week. Happy Friday, everybody. Absolutely. Same to you. That's Mike McKenna joining us here on 101 ESPN. He mentioned those lines, and I know you wrote them down the same time I was because I was looking at it. Here's my ideal setup, what I'd like to see. I would like to see that Russian line go back together because I think you got the best. Barbie, and Tarasenko. I think you got the best of Barbashev, and you got to get him going. And you got to find a way to get him going. So I like that line. Thomas and Kairou go back together. I'd put Sod with those guys. And in my top line, it's slow, which scares me. But Shen on the wing with O'Reilly and Perron. And again, that line needs to be a shutdown line for me, and I'll get my scoring from the other two. That's what I would love to see. But for Craig Berube, I just don't know if he likes that. To his point, and you know I'm with you, I think Giroux would be a great addition for this team. If you added Claude Giroux, where would he fit in? 
if you had these lines as your combinations, what what do you do then? For me? You put Shin down on that third line, add Giroux to the Ryan O'Reilly line, and call it a day? I think I'm putting David Perron down on the fourth line. And I'm putting Giroux up with Ryan O'Reilly and Braden Shen. I mean, I know that they're deep on the right side. I get it. But and look, I love David Perron, and I want David Perron to be the guy that he that we know him as. But he has not been that guy since he's returned from his injury, and you've got to get him going. And for me, I if I'm going to get Claude Giroux, and we got so many texts from the six three six, Alex, I get it, but it makes no sense to acquire a guy and put him in your forward group. It absolutely does if this guy is going to come in and score more goals and create more puck possession time. Guys, did we overrate the Blues' offense a little bit? Like, have, have we gotten to that point? Because I, I, I'm i with you guys. We've, we've called it the deepest that it's been. And we, we've said, like, hey, this team could have six, maybe seven guys that score at least 20 goals. All of it is true. All of it. And it's earned. When you watch them lately, have you felt like, oh, this is an overwhelming offense? Because I have not. At times I have. Um, you know, the New Jersey Devils, No. Ottawa Senators, no. Montreal, no. But pre-break, that game against the Calgary Flames back here in St. Louis, I thought they were overwhelming. They've had games where they look amazing. But if they you, really do. But if you but, go back through the stretch of games where they were on the road, where I forgot who they played before they played the Vancouver Canucks, but they played that road game. They won that. That that was where they felt overwhelming. Played the Vancouver Canucks, no. Got killed by the Calgary Flames, absolutely not. Came home and played well against the Calgary mm-hmm. Flames. Then they played the Winnipeg Jets. They did not look good there. So the majority of games that we have seen probably in their last 10, I'd say probably three of them, I felt like the offense is overwhelming. And this is with them being healthy. And that's a concern because yeah. that was our all, that always was our concern of these guys look great, but how do they look when they're healthy when all of these guys have ice time and you don't have enough mouths to feed? Which goes into the argument of why would you bring in Claude Giroux but I'm not worried about too many mouths to defeat because if I'm going to go get a guy, I want to make sure that my teams are scoring goals. Do you guys know how many uh, goals David Perron has in his last 30 games? Any guesses on the goal production in the last from 30? David Perron in his last 30 games? I would say it's probably at least four. Four goals? Maybe five? Tanner, how many goals do you think David Perron has scored in his last 30 games? I'll go with, I'll go six. Three. Yeah. David Perron has scored Three I, goals in his last 30 games. And I think two of them are on the power play. He has one power play, so one power two play? even strength. Wow. Yeah. He has a total of seven even strength points in his last 30 games. That's just not good enough. The vast majority of the time he's playing with Ryan O'Reilly. I know there was a period where he wasn't with Ryan O'Reilly, but they they re-put those guys together very quickly. They were reacquainted right away. If you're going to have him on that line, you just need more production. You need more production from him. So it's a good point by you. Maybe the reason why you make that kind of a trade is because David Perron just hasn't produced the way that you want him to. And if you could just if you could get something out of him like you did with Alexander Steen and you put Perron on the fourth line, if my fourth line is Costin, Sunquist, and Perron, that's a that's an aggressive line that has the potential of being lethal offensively. Yeah. Now, defensively I'd be a little concerned, but you got you got to get the best out of your team, and right now you're just not getting enough out of Perron. Coming up in 10 minutes, do these prices make you a little squeamish about adding a defenseman? That's a question that I'm going to ask Tanner Hendrickson because I know he's been all in on the defensive side of things. We'll talk about what the prices could be coming up here in about 10 minutes. But coming up next, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for Ask Us Anything, which is totally different than our typical questions and answers. That's next on 101 ESPN. 
We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe? Text now to 65780. It's PK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for Ask Us Anything. I was about to say questions and answers. No. That is not the segment today, only because it's Friday. Ask Us Anything. Friday. Everybody, it's a Friday. I don't know that one. Oh my God. Really? You were her age. No. Really? That actually surprises that me. Was like I, I would your expect prime. you to know that. That was I know, your prime eighth grade year. Is that like year. a YouTube video song? No. I know there's a Friday one like no. that. Oh. What is it? What's her it's name? Rebecca Black. Yeah. Uh, I'm very upset that I know For that. Ask Us Anything, let's start with this one from the 314. Hey, guys, what's your thoughts on the Matt Stafford and the camera lady at the parade situation? I don't understand why it seemed like he was getting so much hate for someone getting hurt trying to take a picture. Okay. I got some thoughts on this, Alex. I do, too. He should have gone over and just offered, like, hey, are you okay? It is, it's pretty simple. That being said, he was super drunk. And he looked at it, was like, oh, that ain't my problem. I'm going to go the other way. And I got to be honest with you. Like, if I was in the same mental state, I, I can't tell you for sure that I would have done something different. Like, it, he was he was hammered. And so his wife goes over and offers a lending hand. And they ended up being able to get her the help that she needed. And now they're paying for all of her surgery costs, her medical bills, and also to recover all of her camera work. It, it was an eight-foot-tall stage that she fell off of. And the lady apparently fractured her back. Well, yeah, she fell backwards without knowing where the end of the stage huge, was. Huge fall. So, like, you, you got to go over and offer a lending hand. I'm totally with you. In that situation, you've got to do it. He was also really messed up. So it, it's I'm not going to sit here and cr- be super critical of him when he was in that kind of state. I understand that he was super messed up. But for me, I, I can... I can 99% tell you that out of instinct, my thing would have been to go over to that human being and find out if, one, she was okay, and, two, call for people to come over and help that person. There were also thousands of people around the area. Understandable, but my first reaction, which is where I'm at on this, it tells me a little bit about the person that Matthew Stafford is, to turn and look to his wife and say, you deal with that. He didn't turn to her. He just turned the other way. And mouth, you deal with that. No, he didn't. If you read the lips of Matthew Stafford, <laughs> no, it looked like he said handle that. Lips. What are you talking about? <laughs> what are you talking he literally about? You can totally the moment see that his she lips. Fell. That's no. not true. You can see his lips. Watch the video. <laughs> what, do you watch one where they like inserted lips on the video? Regardless. No, I didn't watch those. Those are great, though, by the way. Regardless, <laughs> my initial reaction would not be to turn away, even if I was That's messed right. up. I would be going over to find out. My reaction would be Matthew Stafford's wife's reaction, even if I was messed up. So that's where I come at on this one. But but again, there's not much you can do. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line from the 573. BK and Alex, not Tanner because he's not married. <laughs> I am getting married in May. Any advice for me over the next right, couple I'll turn of months? My mic off here. <laughs> um, my advice would be just be always available for your significant other in this circumstance because the last five months, there's really not much you as the husband can do other than make sure everything that is on the to-do list is getting accomplished because a lot of this is just 
it's it's dividing and conquering where it's like, okay, well, I need this to get, I need the, the flowers to get delivered. I need to make sure this is set up. I need to make sure this person gets here on this time. That's where I would always just jump in and be like, okay, what do you need me to help accomplish with that? So that's at least what I was do. I would always check in with Katie every morning and say like, hey, what's on the to-do list today? And she'd be like, oh, great. I need you to contact your mom and see if she's going to be available for this, this, and this. That's how I felt like I could at least contact her or help out and, and lessen the load for Katie in the final six months. I'm a, an anxious person by nature. Um, that's just who I am. I, I have anxiety. And oh, so not. <laughs> no, I definitely do. Um, the money situation caused a lot of anxiety oh, yes, it for does. me. And when we continue to spend, there's just no way to make it cheap anymore. Like there, there really never has been, but especially now with everything that goes into a wedding, it's going to cost you more than you're expecting. Like whatever your number is that you set aside, it's probably going to be more than that. Just know it's good. You're going to figure it out. Like that, that, that's, that was my mindset the last like three weeks or so, a month probably going into the wedding. And I wish I had that mindset the whole time. It caused a lot of frustrations, a lot of arguments as a result of me not having that mindset earlier on. And I, you don't have to give into everything. That's not what I'm saying. But there will be some things that are very important to her that you just got to understand. And you say to yourself, we'll figure it out. We'll make it work. And if this costs us a little bit on the back end, if this means that we can't have that extra night of dinner a couple of times a week, or we got to go from two times eating out a week to one, or, or we don't have electricity none, for a month, that's fine. You can live without it. You, you just gotta you gotta make it work. Um, and eventually, in the end, it'll all be worth it. You'll have an unbelievable night, and it'll save you a whole lot of frustration in the meantime. So uh, that's probably the one piece of advice that I wish I followed. So is me preaching what I didn't follow. Just know it'll all work out in the end, and you'll be able to figure it out. So that's that's probably the biggest piece of advice that I would have. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, have we entered a new era in the NFL when it comes to quarterback play? We'll explain what that could be coming up at 12:15. But next, Tanner's all in on adding a defenseman. What about the prices, though? Does this make you a little squeamish? We'll talk about it next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. coming up in about 10 minutes or so. We've entered a new era for the NFL and it pertains to the quarterback play. We'll talk about that coming up here in about 10 minutes or so. But Alex, the big new story here in St. Louis when it comes to the Blues, especially the trade deadline is, hey, does it make more sense to go after Claude Giroux than it does going after one of these top defensemen? And the reason why we've brought this up is, A, it was reported by Frank Saravalli, who's one of the top insiders in the NHL, that according to him, Giroux would like to go to one of three teams, either the Wild, the Blues, or the Avalanche. He has a full no movement clause, which means it's kind of like the Nolan Arenado situation where he has a ton of leverage, and as a result of that, it is very unlikely that Philly would get a significant return because there are fewer teams that could even get in, in on the bidding. So instead of having six, seven different teams like a free agency bidding war, you've only got at a maximum three and among those three, we're not sure how many, if any, have a whole lot of interest in adding Claude Giroux for a significant price. So that's why it's even a conversation to be started here. But Darren Pang was on the broadcast last night, and I recorded what he ha- what his thoughts were on this situation. He does not agree with our belief that 
Claude Giroux would actually make sense here in St. Louis. The, the talk or the rumors or the you know conversations about a, a guy like Claude Giroux of the Philadelphia Flyers, I mean, the, the Blues needs aren't there. That type of conversation, to me, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But how many times do you see contending teams? What do they need? You need depth on the blue line. You always do. You don't know how many guys you're going to go through in the course of trying to win four rounds of potentially seven games. And there's some games where you might need heavier players and bigger on the penalty kill or the matchup. Sometimes you might need more offensive-minded players because you've got no transition game. Every team's going to be different at the trade deadline. I mean, he's he's not wrong. Teams that win the Stanley Cup need defensive depth. Look at what the Blues had when they won the Stanley Cup. You had Carl Gunnarsson and Joel Edmondson. And those were your sixth and seventh defensemen, along with Robert Portuzo and Vince Dunn playing in the bottom six. So you had, what is that? That's four guys to play two positions. So you need depth. And I, I have stood by the fact that Claude Giroux does not need to be the end-all move. If they make the move for Claude Giroux, you still need to find a way to get a defenseman. That's where it comes into, okay, well, maybe let's check in on Zidane Chara, who's making the league minimum to be an upgrade for what we have in some of that defensive depth. And far be it for me to disagree with Darren Pang, because Darren Pang knows what the hell he is talking about. He's an awesome individual. He knows hockey. He talks to all of the brightest minds in hockey. I, I just, for me... Watching the last six or seven games, Claude Giroux would make this team better. And of course he would. He's a great player. He would make any team better. And if Colorado's looking into it, if Minnesota's looking into it, and Elliot Friedman on his 32 podcast, uh, 32 Thoughts podcast today said that the Florida Panthers were checking in on it. If these teams who are Stanley Cup favorites checking in on it, the Blues should be checking in on it as well. And I think there is a spot that he could fill in on. And it's the spot that's held by David Perron right now. So that's at least where I'm at on this. But I, Claude Giroux does not need to be the only move here. It's one of two moves, which I know sounds crazy because they have no cap. But you you find a way to get another defenseman. Your guy, Justin Braun, Zidane Chara. You bring in somebody like that to add to the depth on defense and strengthen your forwards as well. Yeah, and see, look, I, I agree. Char, or excuse me, uh, Drew would be an upgrade, but I look at it as okay, Drew, you bring him in, and then they can't go make that big move for that big defenseman that I think they need, and that's where I am hesitant on it because I know the offense we just talked about. You know, the offense has not been that impressive since the break. I think it's more of just a one-off. I, I, I'm not buying too much into it. I, I think this offense will be fine. And I, I look at Chara, and I say he's not much of an upgrade. I agree with, uh, I think it was Craig Button that was on the piece that Jeremy Rutherford wrote this morning on The Athletic. I recommend you check it out if you haven't seen it. And his his quote on Zendano Chara, can't play. Two words, and, and that's it. And and, and that's, the, that's the whole reason I'm not in on Zendano Chara. He's older to me. He, he doesn't... I just don't think he's the solution. I think the two guys I've come down to are Mark Giordano or Jacob Chikrin. And I think Jacob Chikrin is less likely just because I think he's going to require more because he's got term on his contract. So I think it is more of that rental route for the Blues. And I think it's not only is it what Darren Peng said in that cut of having depth on the blue line, in my opinion, to me it's just upgrading the depth on the, or just improving the quality of the players on the blue line. I think this defense needs help. I think we saw it last night. It was not a great game from Colton Preko. We talked about it. Robert Bortuzzo, BK tweeted out, his controller broke in the middle of that penalty kill. There was a guy standing right in front of the net. That's not on the forwards. And so I... I look at it and say they definitely need someone on the blue line. I think it is Jacob Chikrin or it is Mark Giordano, and those should be the two guys that the Blues should push for at the trade deadline. 
Craig Button was just like Mortal Kombat mode of Zidane trying to finish him. Yeah. Can't play. It, it, it was very simple. And the, the article that he's referencing is from Jeremy Rutherford. He had a really good piece today um, along with an NHL scout, Scott Wheeler, who does some of the prospect analysis for The Athletic. And he talked with Craig Button, who's outstanding, and his analysis is great. And we'll try to get him on soon to be able you to talk You know what, Tanner? Get him on too. next week. Um, Noted. And, and they, they all broke down what they're seeing right now in some of these <laughs> potential candidates uh, who could be traded. And, yeah, that, that's all he said. He, when, when he was asked about, hey, what about Zidane Ochara, he said can't play. That's it. No, nothing more, nothing I, less. That's it. Can I, I enjoy imagining JR's face when he saw that, when he heard that, too. Can't play. <laughs> yeah, you could tell well, that okay. that was a text from Craig Button, too, and he just, like, copy and paste it. Can I clear up the misconception, though, with Zidane Ochara? You're not acquiring him to be a top-pairing defenseman with Colton Pareko. You're acquiring him to be a depth piece. If you think that he is less of a player than Marco Scandella or Jake Wallman right now, you're just incorrect. I don't care if he's 44 years old. I don't care if he's 48 years old. The guy keeps himself in great shape, and he has seven foot on the skates. You're bringing him in, and Kevin Kurtz, who covers the New York Islanders of the Athletic, put a piece out about the trade availability on the Islanders team, and he said, look, Chara's not playing 20 minutes a night, but what he can do is play 15 minutes a night, and he can play four minutes of a penalty kill. And what did Panger just say in that quote that you just had? You want depth on the blue line, and you want somebody who can play the penalty kill. That's Sedano Chara. Chara would be one of the defensemen. And by the way, you're bringing in a guy who has been a captain in the National Hockey League for a very long time to strengthen the what that we just talked about a little bit ago? Leadership in the locker room. So the misconception of can't play for Zidane Chara, yeah, he can't play with Colton Pareko, but he can play 15 minutes a night against the Colorado Avalanche and punish Gabriel Landeskog for trying to park himself in front of Vili Husso. Well, that, yeah, that's, I, the, that's the difference for me. Sorry, BK, that's the difference for me. I'm not looking to upgrade the third pairing. I'm looking to upgrade the top pairing. I, I, I get that we're looking to replace Marco Scandella. I'm not looking to replace Scandella on the third pairing. I'm looking to replace Scandella with Mikola on the third pairing. I'm looking to improve that top guy. That's where I differ. I want to improve the top four defensemen, not just the bottom. Because I agree, Nico Mikola is probably going to be a top four, could be a top four defenseman for the Blues. He's too green, and I don't want him heading into a playoff run where I think this team should be in the Stanley Cup bus mode because of how deep they are at so, forward. So you're telling me that if you had the two options of option A, you get Mark Giordano or Jacob Chikrin, and that's it. Option B, Claude Giroux and Zdeno Chara. You're telling me you take option A? I'm taking option A. I don't think we no need. Way. I don't think we need Claude Giroux. I think Claude no Giroux way. is more of a uh, want than a need. I desperately need a top four defenseman, in my opinion. I look at Claude Giroux as it's kind of a want. It's kind of like a nice bonus. I get him, but then I get that third pairing defenseman. In my opinion, sure, you're going to upgrade the offense, and maybe you help out the defense a little bit because Claude Giroux is a better defensive forward and back checks more. I just look at it and say, yeah, but then I didn't really upgrade the defense, and that's where I come from because I don't think Char is going to help much. Sure, he's an upgrade from Scandella, but I don't think he's that much of an upgrade to where it helps this defense help them go on this cup run this year. I don't necessarily disagree in a vacuum with Tanner, for what it's worth, but that's not taking into account the cost of what you're going to have to pay for these guys, and I'm not talking about the money. We'll get to that here in just a minute. I'm talking about the assets that you're going to have to give up for these guys. If you're going to trade for Jacob Chikrin, it will very likely, according to all the reports out there, cost more than what Buffalo got for Jack Eichel. Yeah. So you're talking about a first-round pick, plus and maybe it's Ivan Barbashev. An NHL-ready player. You're looking Barbashev or an Oscar Sundquist. And you're probably talking about also adding in Scott Perunovic and potentially, what we'll see on this, Jake Neighbors. 
Like th- that's the kind of cost that it's going to take to get a Jacob Chikrin because he is an established NHL player on a fantastic contract that yeah. has multiple years of club control remaining. And Arizona and does he's not have young, to trade. And he's a legit top four defenseman. Yeah, Scott Wheeler said two of your top three prospects, which are Perunovic, Neighbors, and Bolduke. And you're going to have to give a first-round pick included in that and as well. And probably an NHL-ready player. And also you're asking them to add, to take on some of the salary. So it, it, it is a lot that you're giving up for Jacob Chikrin. So that's one of them. Another one on Ben Sherratt, who I am just honestly kind of out on right now. They believe that the Canadians will get at least a first-round pick plus an asset. So maybe it's a first-round pick plus a, a prospect or another potential pick. Like, it, you're getting multiple pieces in that kind of a deal. And, and if you look at what Montreal just got for Tyler Toffoli, who has more term on his contract, I mean, they got a former third-round draft pick. So you're not talking about any of your top three prospects. You're talking about a first-round pick and probably a depth piece, like a Nikita Alexandrov or something like that. Maybe. Or, or maybe more, because Ben Sherrod has a lot of teams that are coming after him, and there are so few players That's that are on the market on the left side of the defense and everybody needs these guys and this is why when we're talking about going the the Giroux route it makes so much more sense is because the cost is so much lower all right there's one other player that we've talked a lot about that it was also going to cost a lot the Seattle Kraken are asking for a first round pick plus something more for Mark Giordano and they will very likely end up getting it because again there are so many teams that need a left-handed top four defenseman and the only guys that really fit that criteria right now are Sherratt, Giordano, and maybe Chikrin if he ends up getting dealt at the deadline. There are many more than two to three teams that need a top four pairing left side defenseman. That is why the cost is going to be so high for these guys. And if that is what they are asking for, guys, I'm just not sure I'm willing to meet that cost for those players. Are you willing to meet that cost, Tanner? I am, because I think this is such a hole on this Blues team that it will hold them back in the playoffs. And that's how I view it. I I think... Mark Giordano is probably the better option then, so you don't have to give up as much for the Jacob Chicker. Maybe you give up a pick and maybe one of those prospects for Mark Giordano. I don't but think Chikrin's a real option for this team. I, I don't agree. Think so I agree. I, I, I like Chikrin or Giordano. Those are the two for me. I don't think the so Blues really will go to the stretch Giordano for Chikrin. Or bust. Yeah, I think it's Jiro O'Donnell. I think if you give up a pick in a prospect form, it's worth it because, to me, there's such a hole on the back end for the St. Louis But even Blues. on that article on The Athletic, it talked about Mark Giordano saying he can play 18, 19, maybe 20 minutes a night, but he's not the guy that he once was. So you're acquiring – you're basically – I think he's better than Ben Gerard. I think he's your best option of defenseman out there, but you're acquiring a guy who's a top-four defenseman. You're not acquiring a top-shutdown defenseman like you think that this team needs. You're adding still a depth piece, in my opinion. See, I, Better I, depth piece than Zidane Ochara, but he's not the number one shutdown defenseman that you think you're getting with Colton Pareko. But I, I think he pairs well with Pareko because Pareko's supposed to be viewed as that guy that is going to be that shutdown defenseman, in my opinion. So if he 100%. can do that. And Mark Giordano, his defensive metrics, I'm looking at his player card from the Athletic, are not bad. His defensive metrics are actually pretty good for Absolutely not. Uh, Seattle. So, But understand one thing. You're trading for a defenseman that you're trying to build chemistry with Colton Pareko. And this goes back to Jamie Rivers' comments on the fast lane about a week or so ago. Did the Blues wait too long to make a trade? Because he said if they should make a trade for a defenseman, do it earlier rather than later so you give them time to get acclimated. Look how long we've been trying to get Colton Pareko and Nico Mikola working well together. You got Pareko and Scandella working together. If you're going to go trade for a guy who's playing 20 minutes a night with Colton Pareko, I'd be a little concerned about getting that chemistry going for a guy that you're relying on playing 
playing against the other team's top lines. And I get that, but if we're going to go with that, then we may have already surpassed the time for any trade. I mean, at some point, they just have to kind of mesh Unless well together. Unless you're getting a depth piece. They have to mesh well together, and they have to do it quickly. And that's going to come down to them and working on it, working on it in practice. So I, I understand that point of view on it, but to me... You have to make that move and just hold. They have to get it figured out at practice. They have to get it acclimated quickly because otherwise, I can say that for any deal. And, and even if it is a depth piece, I can say that for a char. Well, he's got to mesh well with the board twos when he comes in. So I don't really look at I understand that that is an issue, but I don't think the Blues can take that into effect because if it takes up to the deadline to go make this deal happen, they have to get it done because if they don't acquire a defenseman, in my opinion, it's a failed deadline and it's a potentially, I'm not going to say it's a waste of year because anybody can go on a cup run, but it's definitely a year that I look at and I go, man, they had so much depth it forward and it just feels like it, it they didn't take it to its ma- take it to the ceiling and take it to its maximum potential because they didn't go get a defenseman in my opinion now for the elephant in the room and an elephant randy room? tweeted about this to the 101 account yesterday because we we posted a tweet about claude Giroux and whether or not he makes sense for the blues and he asked a fair question where's all the salary cap room coming from and i've seen a lot of people ask that question how are the blues going to make this work because Mark Giordano has a pretty sizable deal remaining. He's a, he's at $6.5 million this year, and Sherrod has a decent amount of money left on his deal. And uh, if you're looking specifically at a guy like Giroux, I mean, he's, he's got, what, 8.2? Is that is that right, Alex? Sherrod? Giroux. Oh, Giroux? Uh, it's 8.275 for the rest of this season. So he, he's he's got a sizable contract as well. How do you make that work? It's actually not as hard as you would expect it to be. So basically, hear me out here. We're going to do some math on the air really quick. Oh, no, T-Bone. The first thing you're going to have to do with any of these deals, and it's going to increase the price, but this is the way that the Blues have to do business right now because they are at the cap, basically. They they essentially have no money to play with. It's like $35,000 that they've got available to them. The first thing they could do is put Marco Scandella on LTIR, which frees up like $3.2 million, and then you're pretty good regardless of who you decide And for to people make. that think, oh, that's not going to happen, remember Craig Bruby's quote yesterday after the morning skate where they asked about Scandella skating, and he said, not good, it's going to take some time, we got to be patient. That's all the evidence you need for a potential long-term injury yeah. reserve for a guy. He could go on LTIR tomorrow, and it wouldn't surprise anybody. And, and that's come back for the playoffs. Dollars and you're good to go. Yep. However, let, let's say that doesn't happen, Alex. Well, with a guy like Giroux, you would have to ask them to eat 50% of the contract. Okay, that's part of it. The other thing is you got to look at how much time still remains in this season because when you trade for a player at the deadline, Alex, you don't get the full $8.275 million that goes under your cap sheet. You get the percentage of the season that remains in terms of the number of days that are left. So if you do that, it's about 21% of the season if you get to the trade deadline that remains when you end up acquiring a guy like Giroux. So for his contract, what that would mean is you're taking on $1.75 million in terms of the cap that is coming from Philly to the Blues. That is before they keep 50% of the deal. If they keep 50% of the deal and you take on the $1.75 million, you're looking at like $900,000. You basically play a couple of players short. You go to the 21-man roster instead of 23-man roster. Bada-boom, bada-bing. We're good to go. Bob's your the uncle. Blues have all of the money that they need. So I say all of that to say this. Money will not be a problem for the Blues at the deadline if they don't want it to be. They can make this work. It will cost them more in terms of assets that they potentially have to give up because those teams are going to ask for, for something in return to keep that money on their books. But that's how they're able to make it work. You can go ahead and trade for, uh, honestly, up to like $10 million you could add if you needed to, especially 
if a guy like uh, Marco Scandella is able to go on LTIR. So if if you're hearing about anybody that the Blues are going to be able to take on this year, don't worry about the money. They will make that work. They've got people in charge that are pretty good with the, the cap situation. They were able to add a bunch last year despite the fact that they didn't have a ton of money coming off the And books, if you don't so. think other teams are doing this, they're going to be doing this. And by the way, you can also pay another team to take on some salary, which teams are going to be doing as well. Remember David Savard getting traded from the Columbus Blue Jackets to Tampa Bay. The Columbus Blue Jackets traded him to the Detroit Red Wings, if I'm not mistaken, and they also traded a pick, and then the Red Wings essentially traded him to Tampa after they ate half of that salary. That could happen as well. Yeah, so for people that are wondering, like, hey, could the Blues go out there and acquire a defenseman and a guy like uh, Giroux? The answer is yeah. They, they, they could make that work if, if they needed to. And that goes back to my idea of Justin Braun. With Alex Ferrari <laughs> on Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we're going to dive into the junk drawer. We went long here. We're going to skip the NFL segment. We're going to get into baseball where Alex, surprise, surprise, they're actually so, showing some urgency. Do they have about another 15-minute time? No, they didn't have a 15-minute meeting, but it sounds like they're going to sit in a room and try to figure this thing out over the next 10 days because that's all they got. We'll talk about it next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. That's Tanner Hendrickson. He's Alex Ferrario and I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. So baseball's finally showing some urgency, Alex. Good when they got 10 days to get something done. So according to Jeff Passan, MLB and the MLBPA are planning to conduct multiple bargaining sessions within the next week even possibly meeting every day starting on Monday. There was another report from Sportsnet up in Canada that MLB has expressed some willingness to, quote, move towards the union's demands, end quote, on the competitive balance tax and efforts to get players paid earlier in their careers. The Sportsnet uh, report also added that the union has informed the league that they would be unlikely to agree to a playoff expansion in 2022 if the regular season or shortened. So if we end up missing any games, which means if in the next 10 days there is not an agreement, sounds like we will continue to be with the current format for the postseason. Obviously, baseball doesn't want that because they can get a whole heck of a lot more money if they decide to expand the playoffs. Way to ruin a game, baseball. Long story short. We got 10 days, ladies and gentlemen, 10 days to be able to get this bad boy done. Alex, do you have any more optimism after hearing this report from Jeff Passan and from Sportsnet that it sounds like there's actually some urgency that's starting to begin? Yeah, I think this is where I continued to state that I didn't feel like they were going to miss any games, although it did get a little sketchy there for for a little bit. But when when you have that kill date where you have to make an agreement before things start to get affected and before money starts to get taken away from both sides, that's where things start to ramp up. So the fact that they were having these conversations after a meeting that didn't go well, that's like, look, we have until the 28th to get this done where both of us know that we're not going to miss any games. This is where we need to meet. And the fact that they're going to meet every day, if that's what the report is and it's true, That's huge because if you're getting these guys into the room, they know where the kill date is. They know that they have to make an agreement by February 28th. We got 10 days, boys, to get into a room and hash out our biggest problems. So, yeah, I do have some optimism there. I mean, I've got a little bit of optimism, but, like, I still don't really buy much into it because, like, I – are the owners really going to cave in a little bit on the actual things that the union's trying to accomplish? I kind of doubt that. We'll see if it actually happens. 
maybe they do push things along a little bit sooner, but guys, they should have started this process like in December when the lockout happened. So maybe they start to make some progress. Maybe they do get a deal done. I don't think they're getting a deal done within the next 10 days. Maybe they get it done within the next like 17 to 24 and they miss only like a week of the season, if that, unless they condense down spring training. So I have a little bit of optimism, but the way this negotiation has gone, I'm not going to really have a ton of optimism until I actually start seeing reports that come out that actually sound like good news. I tend to agree with you, Tanner. Like, I, I'm not super confident that this is going to get done in time to be able to start the regular season as expected. I do like the notion, though, that they're going to actually get in a room. And, guys, what makes deals? Deadlines, right? I've asked this entire time, can you just tell me what the date is? What is the date where you feel like if you don't get a deal done by X, then the regular season ends up getting delayed? Well, we finally learned in the last 24 hours that the deadline, according to Major League Baseball, is February the 28th. For what it's worth, the Cardinals were supposed to start spring training, the games, on the 26th. So, uh, the baseball hasn't announced that spring training's delayed, but I got some breaking news for you guys. Spring training is officially delayed. You don't know that. <laughs> I, I, I Just do. a report. Um, but if they can get into a room, and this is starting next Monday, uh, according to this report, so it's actually seven days that they've got to be able to get a deal done in terms of like getting in the room together and, and hashing this thing out. I don't think it's completely out of the realm of possibility that they're able to get this thing done over the course of seven days. I, I have more optimism today than I did 24 hours ago. Yeah, I mean, I I do too. I mean, it's very little optimism, but it's something. I think I'll have more optimism once Monday comes around. When there's I a, won't. It, I, I don't think that you're going to hear anything good on Monday. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I, I think you'll, I'd be stunned the, if there's good news on Monday. <laughs> I bet you eight days. This, this time, when we're here next week, Alex, we're at Centene Community Ice Center next Friday. I bet you you're starting to have a little bit more optimism. I think I'd have optimism on Monday after the meeting if they're going to meet on Tuesday again. If this does truly okay. mean that you're meeting back-to-back days where they have not done that, I think they've done that one, maybe two times since the negotiating has started back up. If you're telling me that Monday they meet and then Tuesday they say we're going to meet again, I'm going to have more optimism. Monday night, I, I might have a lot more optimism now than what I did originally. Now, if Monday comes and that meeting happens and when they walk out of it saying, yeah, that was an awful offer and we're not meeting again, then we got problems. Yeah, I, I think that's fair because, like you said, I think they've maybe met back-to-back like once or twice because usually they send the offer and then we have to wait for some reason a week for them to break the whole thing down and then get We've another offer had in. like six offers. I know, <laughs> which is which is even why it's worse that it takes so long in between the counter offers. So I, I think I'm with Alex, and I think it will grow. my optimism will grow a little bit if they are going to do this actually where they're meeting back-to-back days and they're coming, coming back with these counter proposals uh, a lot quicker than we have seen because that's been the biggest – I don't know if I'm shocked by, A, the lack of offers, and B, the amount of time in between, because maybe I should have been expecting that. But it just seems a little bit outrageous that you get an offer, we wait a week, week and a half to two weeks, and then another offer comes, and we go through the same process. And this is also on top of the fact of the matter that you didn't start your negotiating until January, a month after the lockout had already been implemented. When this thing gets done, can I give you guys a, a potential buy-low candidate that might be able to fix the Cardinals shortstop situation? Dude, we've done Nelson Cruz already multiple no, times. No, no, no. This would be a trade candidate Somebody for told shortstop. Me, BK told me I'm going to like this. So, yeah, give it to We're me. We're going back to Sean Manaya. No, but it is another former Royal, or current Royal, actually. Oh, well, Sean Manaya was a well, former I'm, Royal. This I'm guy out on is this. a Royal. Currently. I'm out on this. If it's a Royal. So, this comes from... CBS Sports. I'm going to hide the name until you get to the end. Injuries have really hampered this gentleman's career the last few seasons. All right. When healthy, though, he passes both the eye and the analytical tests. 
and he can play the middle infield. The Royals are now set at the position with Nick, uh, Nicky Lopez. They have Whit Merrifield at second base, plus top prospect Bobby Witt Jr. is coming to either fill third base or shortstop himself. This gentleman is a man without a position in Kansas City unless you count on him as a DH, which might be the best way to keep him healthy. It is still very easy to dream on the tools that this player currently possesses. The player that they are referencing is Adalberto Mondesi. Oh. He is one of the former top prospects in baseball. He is a guy that in his career has 128 stolen bases in 340 games played. Now, the guy can't hit. He's a 250 career hitter Neither with a 285 on base percentage. Yeah, bring him here. He doesn't walk. He doesn't strike out a ton, which is good, but he doesn't walk ever. So he doesn't walk, he doesn't and, strike out, and he can't hit. And he doesn't have a great batting average so far in his career. But he is fast as hell, and he's got really good defense at shortstop if he's able to stay healthy. And that's really been the problem for him. He's played more than 75 games once in his career, and he's been up in the big leagues now for six years. So he, he doesn't, he's not a guy that stays healthy very often. The pandemic season was the only year that he really was able to do so. He led the American League in stolen bases with 25 steals in 59 games that year. The guy is an absolute threat on the bases and, again, really good defensively. Would you be interested? I, I don't know what it would cost. I can't imagine a whole lot. He's only got two years of, uh, of club control remaining. Would you be interested in adding Adalberto Mondesi as a potential fix at shortstop, either right after the, the lockout ends or maybe even at midseason if Paul DeYoung isn't cutting it out? How is he a fix at shortstop if he can't hit? He, does, he, doesn't, he can't hit. He doesn't strike out a lot. He's better. He's better defensively, I think, than yeah, DeYoung. He upgrades and he's you faster. defensively, and he's really fast. Uh, you got really fast guys. I, no, I, I, that doesn't sound like anything more of an upgrade than Edmundo Sosa. That that's kind of where I came from. Is I I think a the the injury history is concerning for me. Sure. And it's not like a pitcher where like every pitcher you can look at and go, well, they always have an injury concern. Position players, I think, can be viewed a little bit differently compared to that. And the injury history is a little bit concerned for me. I just view looking at his numbers and the way you kind of describe him. He's he's probably faster than Sosa, but I think Sosa's good. He's one of the fastest players in baseball. Yeah. He's like he's forty three stolen bases in nineteen. Like he is genuinely one of the fastest players in the sport. Yeah, I just don't know. Of, I I would probably pass because I think this is kind of what I would think Sosa could be minus this amount of speed from Mondesi. But these he's numbers also look got like, more power than Sosa. Like he's a guy that if you look at his per one sixty two averages. He averages 30 doubles, 10, 10 triples, and 20 home runs per year. Yeah. So his numbers are there when he's been healthy. He just hasn't been healthy. I just kind of – the power, yeah, probably more than what I would expect from Sosa, but I, I think Sosa could put up the kind of numbers that you look at from Mondesi in his career when he's been healthy and playing. I think Sosa could put up these kind of numbers. So I think I would probably pass on this. I don't know how much of an upgrade he would be, and I wouldn't probably move any – I get it. This probably would be a small package. I wouldn't move probably any assets to go acquire him. See, I might be into, in on this. Um, this would have to require, like, the, the reason why I bring it up, I would not do this now. I'll say that out, uh, on the front Great. end. I would rather find out what you've got in Paul DeYoung and Edmundo Sosa first. I don't know how real Edmundo Sosa is. I'm just going to be totally honest. In his minor league career, everything seemed to indicate, and the Cardinals' actions seemed to indicate, this is a potential utility infielder, not a starting shortstop. And honestly, even the Cardinals' comments since the season 
I think they still believe that's the case, and that's what the future is going to hold for Edmundo Sosa. I think they believe he's a solid defender who's probably not going to hit the way that he did last year. I think they think that was a fluke. So if you're talking about a guy that can come in and be a 260 to 270 hitter, that's what Adalberto Mondesi's been in his career so far, and he's not going to get on base at a high clip, but he's going to slug pretty well, and he's going to be kind of like Tommy Edmund as another threat on the bases, and you've got a guy in Skip Schumacher who really believes in that and instills that in his team, if you get a subpar season out of Edmundo Sosa, if Paul DeYoung looks the same way that he has for years now with the Cardinals, I think you could make a strong case that Alberto Mondesi would be an excellent acquisition, but it would require him staying healthy before you get to the trade deadline and also those other two guys failing first. I think it's a good buy-low candidate, um, and I would be curious to find out what he could potentially do here in St. Louis where he's surrounded by much better players in the lineup. I, I think he would be more productive here than he has been so far in his career in Kansas City where he's been counted on as like a number two or three hole hitter and he's probably closer to an eight or a nine hole hitter he's a guy that should be batting towards the bottom of your order as opposed to being up at the top yeah with Alex Ferrario and cool. Tanner Hendrickson I'm Brandon Kylie. I it's very clear that Alex has no interest in Adalberto Mondesi Steven Matz I, cool I, I thought you were a guy that liked speed but I, I guess not I got speed I got Bader I got O'Neal and these guys get on base well, sometimes. I don't know that that's necessarily true. Coming up in about 15 <laughs> don't minutes. take shots at your boy like that. What do the Blues do in net tomorrow night? I thought with 10 seconds left, Alex, this was a no-brainer. And then we watched the last 10 seconds of, the, of regulation unfold. So we'll talk about that coming up in about 15 minutes. We're going to dive into the junk drawer, though, coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The Junk Drawer with BK and Ferrario. That's Alex Ferrario. He's Tanner Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Coming up here in about 10 minutes or so, we'll answer the question of what do the Blues do in net tomorrow night against Toronto? Play a goaltender. I would recommend doing that. Which one would you go with? We'll talk about that here in about 10 minutes or so. But, Tanner, let's dive into the junk drawer today. What do you got for us, my man? All right, well, you guys know uh, this past Monday was Valentine's Day. I'm sure you guys did something with the wives. I bought myself chocolates. You know, we all have our different <laughs> things to do on Valentine's Day. That's that's really sad, Tebow. I was. I'll take, you could come out with Katie and I next next Valentine's Day. Okay, uh, noted. Hopefully I have you, a girlfriend no, by then. No, you but, won't. Okay. You won't. All right, well, that's depressing. But I, I know for a fact that neither of us, all three of us, had as good a time as Stephon Diggs reportedly had. The what Buffalo, are you about? The Buffalo Bills wide receiver allegedly had two women in the same hotel in two different rooms on Valentine's Day. Ho, ho, ho. Well, you don't know what they were doing. They that, might have been playing Uno. I doubt it. I doubt they were playing Uno. But that sounds exhausting, just thinking of it. I, I mean, I heard Alex's valentine's day of what he did with his wife and what you did with uh Whoa, adelaide you, that. you told me what you guys did you did like a shopping spree thing no no we didn't go to applebee's went to cheesecake factory and then so you know that trend Same on thing. you know that whoa okay let's discuss that first Applebee's and Cheesecake Factory are very Not the different same. Applebee's places. is totally They're better chain national restaurants that are known for having a lot of things on the menu Okay, actually, that was a good point. No, it's not a good point. I'm just going to gloss over that. But (laughs) what we did afterwards was we, we, you know, that TikTok 
thing that was viral on Valentine's Day where you go to Target and you basically, you and your significant other split and you go buy like certain items for the other person and then surprise them with it at the end. Yeah, we did that and it was very exhausting because I took my daughter with me and I'm like, okay, well, I'm wanting to buy things for you all over. So it was exhausting, but not Stefan Diggs exhausting. Yeah, that does sound exhausting. I can't imagine having two women in the same hotel in two different rooms. We've got to explore this a little more. Hold on. It was it. No, we don't need to explore it. He had two, they were in two different rooms? Yes. Yeah. So he's at the, so he's at this hotel. He's with both girls, apparently. Like, they were both considered his girlfriends. They believed... They were his dates. They believed them to be his girlfriend. Not just for this night, but, like, he was with these So girls. was he, like, Fred Flintstoning it, where he was going to one and then saying, hey, I gotta go to the bathroom, and then running to see the other? Apparently, yes. Oh, damn, Apparently, he was not found He's out impressive. that night. Now, they found out later on, but that night, he was able to get away with this. And, by the way... Apparently, this is nothing new for our boy, Stefan Diggs. He's a Ste- player. Stefan Diggs. <laughs> Jesus. This came out. This was a, uh, a Twitter video <laughs> that the Vikings put out years ago. I think this was three years ago that they put this out. Wait, they followed him on they, Valentine's Day? They asked different players on the Vikings, who would you least like your sister to date? Which player would you least like your sister to date? Four different players asked in this video. And that's all they asked. They didn't ask like 20 players. It was four guys they asked. All of them said Stefan Diggs. Dalvin Cooks was my favorite because he like looked at him. He's like, he's like, hey, you're going to ask me that question? And he goes, oh, Stefan Diggs. Like immediately Stefan <laughs> yeah. Diggs. Everybody said the exact same thing. So you've got a bunch of dudes on the team that knew years ago. Stefan's the guy. He's the player that you don't want your sister to date. So in this Valentine's Day situation, he goes to this hotel. He's got multiple side pieces who both believe them to be his main piece. In different rooms. He's a player. And he's going at different times. He starts out the night in one evening. I'm sure they had a lovely time he's together. Like, oh, man, the, that lobster's going what? through me real quick. He's you got go the, to the rose bathroom. petals all set up. He's got room service coming in. She, she's his dinner date. Whoa. What is the then other he girl goes thinking? upstairs to the penthouse. She's the she's the cherry on the top of the sundae. She, she's the dessert date, Alex. So he's got champagne in one room. They're not items, BK. And, and, he, and he's got the wine in the other room. Stefan Diggs is doing it right, man. He's living right. I don't think so. That's more stress than anything. I couldn't do that. That sounds exhausting. That's just way too stressful. That's just way too stressful because at some point I'm going to call one of the girls by the wrong name. It's just it's just an awful idea for an evening. Somebody from the text line, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line from the 636. Guys, do you think their rooms were next door no. or do you, to save time? Or do you go to different levels to be able oh, to avoid to getting caught? you got to go to different levels. You got to. 100% you can't you go next go door. You get caught doing that. No chance you could go right Those next door. Those walls are thin in hotels, too. Yeah, yeah. there's going to be pounding. You can't Yeah, can't I know from personal that. experience, those are very thin walls. Who had a better Who had a better timeout? Alex couldn't do this because he'd be inspecting for bed bugs in two different rooms, and that sure just takes do. too much time. And you know, who, no, it, it takes like five also, minutes. It also ruins the mood. And like you got it. the rose petals you all laid out. You do before she gets in there. No, you, you got to enter the room together. No, you don't. Say, hey, honey, I gotta go get make sure the room's set I up. For a romantic, I just, they're down at night? the bar still drinking. No. Say, I'm gonna go make sure our well, room's set up. Well, he couldn't do that because he's got two different yeah. chicks that well, are coming in. I just you know can't what? imagine when he disappears for like 30 minutes at a time, where people are thinking, "Hey, man, yeah, irritable bowel on? syndrome. You you can you can disappear for a while and he, have problems. I, I, I bet you the play is you you got to go down to the bar. You're gonna go get another bottle. No, why? And it you, takes 30 minutes service. for that. 
Because that's your excuse, Alex. No, you, you got irritable bowel syndrome, and you got to make sure you're ready to go Al for the Alex evening. Alex has all of the different moves that would completely ruin Fail. the mood. Uh, uh, I'm yeah. sorry. Does your significant other want to have a romantic evening with bed bugs on her? I don't think so. My significant other's going to enjoy her evening because she's not going to have little buds blood she, spots all she over her. She wouldn't even think about the bed bugs, <laughs> Until man. she gets home and she's like, it's you took Valentine's me to a hotel Day. with bed bugs. We've got the rose petals on the ground. We've got the bath drawn. We've got Sounds some like bed bugs to me. <laughs> hey, who had a better time out? Stefan Diggs or Earl Thomas and his brother in the Legion of Boom? Oh, man, that's a tough Wait, one. What's I, that, what's I would that say one? I don't know if I've heard Earl, Earl and his Thomas. brother had one girl, and then his wife caught him there cheating. Was, there was purple oh, wow. lighting in the room. He apparently had a picture that was posted on Instagram, I think it was. His wife saw it. She she drove down the street looking for that purple light, found it, came in with a gun, and was ready to pop it. Oh, I actually do remember that story, actually. <laughs> he hasn't Yikes. been seen since. Oh, my God. Oh, Earl died. Oh, <laughs> boy. That was the last time Earl Thomas had such a strange career, man. That dude was a Hall of Fame player, one of the best players in the league. Yeah, Legion of Doom, dude. Legion of Boom. Got in a fight with Chuck, whatever his Norris? name is. No, not Chuck Norris. Their oh. safety. Got in a fight on the field with that dude. His wife nearly capped him and then was never heard from again. Never played another down all, in the NFL. All I'm saying is that is not an enjoyable Valentine's Day, in my opinion, if I'm oh, Stefan Diggs. That sounds exhausting. I just need one individual, and I can dedicate my time to that. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we're going to be joined by Kylie McDaniel, MLB insider for ESPN.com. He's also their pro prospects guru. I want to ask him about his comp for Nolan Gorman. He said he thinks he can be Max Muncie. Does he mean immediately, or is he saying like four years from now, the way that Max Muncy took a while to become the player that he was? Well, ask Kylie McDaniel about that coming up in 15 Someone minutes. Someone texted and said Tanner would call the first girl the wrong name on first try. <laughs> oh, I totally would. <laughs> Tanner would walk in and call her the wrong name. Game over. Speaking of the wrong name, do the Blues go with him tomorrow night? We'll talk about it next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. That's Alex Ferrario. He's Tanner Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kylie. In 15 minutes, we're going to be joined by Kylie McDaniel of ESPN.com. He'll explain to us why he thinks that Nolan Gorman could be the next Max Muncie. That's coming up in about 15 minutes. But Alex, what are the Blues doing net tomorrow? Because yesterday about... Ten seconds left in the game, I texted you and Tanner, and maybe I'm the reason. Maybe it was a BKO. Maybe I'm the problem. I put a tweet out, too. Don't worry. It was me. Okay, so we were both in in, in faults there. Way to go, guys. Ben Hockman was, too, by the way, of the post-dispatch. He tweeted that Cole Caulfield won't score a goal in the game. I thought it was pretty clear at that point in time, Ville Husso's got to be the starter on Saturday night because he had basically won you that game. He kept you in it long enough to be able to get you over the top, and the Blues ended up winning until, you know, they didn't. And then they allowed the two goals. They allowed the one late with the extra attacker and then the other one in, in overtime and three-on-three three and bada-boom, bada-bing, you lose that game 3-2 in overtime and now you got a decision to make for tomorrow night. I think I would still stick with Huso because what I saw last night was a guy that will give you an opportunity to win even against quality opponents because the Blues just did not play well in front of him. And when they don't play well in front of Ville Huso, he lost two goals in regulation. 
when they don't play well in front of Jordan Bennington, even against qual- uh, lesser opponents like New Jersey. He allowed seven goals. He allowed seven goals well, in that game. It was game. five and two empty nets. Okay. Fair. So five goals. Let's get let's let's not give him too much. Uh, let's not <laughs> knock him too much. Five goals against Bennington, and that's against New Jersey. I think I would go back to Huso, and I think I would start Jordan Bennington next Tuesday in Philadelphia. What would you do tomorrow night in Toronto? Um. Originally, yesterday I told you maybe there's a possibility you could play him against Toronto. Bennington. Bennington against Toronto, yeah. Part of me still wonders if you take an opportunity with that because right now it feels like maybe you just go with your goaltenders. When the guy wins, we ride him. And then when he loses, you go to the next guy. I mean, it can work. But the more I think of it, I think I'm going to go Philly uh, Huso against Toronto because I want to see him against that top competition. And I, I think it makes sense to put Bennington against Philly, another team that's struggling, but a team that will give you some competitiveness. And on top of it, you're in a building. You don't have to worry about Canada and the capacity or whatever it may be if you want to use that as an excuse. And Jamie Rivers, who was with me on the Riverside yesterday on our pregame show, you know, he gave his tinfoil, if you're going to call it that, and said, why not start him against the team that he got his first shutout against when he started that run? Maybe give some confidence back to him. So that might be the way to go. So I think I would go right back to Ville Husso in that game because Ville didn't lose you that game. The team lost you that game. Give Ville the opportunity to perform against Toronto because Bennington performed against Toronto and lost. Yeah, I'm not even hesitating about it. I'm not going to second-guess myself. I'm going right back to Ville Husso because that, that game was on the guys around him and not on Ville Husso. And it's just not a game that I want to try getting Bennington right. I understand maybe that's where that's where he had the first shutout when his run started back in that 19 cup run. I understand that it's his hometown. He needs to prove to me that he can beat a lesser opponent first before he's going to get a shot against a legitimately competitive playoff team in the Eastern Conference or Western Conference. So no hesitation from me. I'm turning the reins right back over to Ville Husso. And I might go back to Bennington on, what is it, Tuesday when they're in Philadelphia. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably for me what I would do in terms of the play because you're going up against a lesser opponent in Philadelphia. By the way, excited about that game to be able to see future uh, Blues forward Justin Brown and future Blues defenseman Justin I Braun. Know. So very excited to watch that game Tuesday <laughs> night in Philadelphia. Speaking of Claude Giroux, the Blues have an issue right now when it comes to their forward. Real lines. quick, can I go back to the the goaltender before Please we do, do. Giroux? Let's put a pause and we'll get to the forward. Okay, game I, apologize. I apologize. No, I, I can see the situation though to put Bennington in this game. And, and here's where I come with that. One, you know he's itching to get back in the net after that New Jersey Devils performance. Two, I think you're pretty sure that you're confident that that team is going to show up. Your team's going to show up when you have to take on an opponent like that. And you just got embarrassed on the matchup against Montreal. And three... Are we sure? Well... When I, they have I, half I, half of the arena is going to be filled. Well, but it's better than 500. Or am, I, am I right? 10,000 is better than 500. It, it's better. It's, it's not a full and, crowd. And though. I think if you're going to get Bennington going... It would be in a matchup like this against Toronto where I understand that they're lighting it up, but I would imagine his energy is going to be a little bit of high. So if like they, at Calgary when he gave up seven? Yeah, but the team looked awful in that game. Team stat, BK. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's my concern. <laughs> yeah, but, but they're coming off of a bad game. I think they'll be on it in this one. Look, they, they didn't play well in the game before that one either whenever they beat Vancouver. Exactly. 3-1. They, they played poorly the game before. They, they won, but they played really poorly in that game against Vancouver. All, and then but they, they won that game. So they're feeling like, well, half of an effort can get us a victory. And then they okay. got their shellacs kicked. Yeah, that I was don't bad. think that's the right word. That, that was probably what, it. What I'm trying to get by with this is I'll, I can see both situations by Craig Bruby. 
Villy makes more sense, but if they do Bennington, I wouldn't be surprised if Bennington comes out with a solid performance against Toronto. Upside for Bennington if you start him tomorrow night is that he's back on track and he feels good and he sp- he did it against a quality opponent, which gives him even more confidence than if he did it against. And the it's Western a rematch line. against Toronto where he blew that game. So, so that's all. That's all the upside. Okay. Claude Giroux. Downside if you start Bennington oh, sorry, tomorrow is he gets rocked, and now it's yet another performance where it's starting to feel like an avalanche around him of negative performances. But what's the difference of getting rocked against Toronto and getting rocked against Philly? I don't think he'll get rocked against Philly because they don't have the offense that is capable of doing it the way that Toronto does. I said that against New Jersey, and look I, what happened. I, I hear you, but the, the the potential for it is much less likely. Like There is real potential of him getting pulled against Toronto yeah, but if I'd, things go poorly. I'd rather go up. I'd rather have a goaltender who is struggling, which I know this sounds crazy, but hear me out. I'd rather have a goaltender who's struggling going up against an offense that you know is going to be good because he's going to be prepared for that rather than a game against Philly where you look at it as like, this team's not going anywhere. They don't have anybody. This and team that's can't the, do that anymore. That No, they can't, but I'm thinking more in the goaltender's mind, which I don't think Bennington's doing. I was doing. about to say, Bennington's doing that? I don't think th- he th- is. That's an issue in and of itself. But just as a whole, I would rather be up against a team that I know is going to bring a really dangerous effort rather than a team that I'm just not sure how my team matches up. The end of a long road trip, you're coming out of Canada, going back to Philly, you just want to get home, you have a two-day break before you play Buffalo. I'd rather my team go where they're on a hot streak, ready to just ready to, to respond against Toronto and put Bennington in that spot. I get it. I would go Huso because I, I think too. he gives you the best chance to win, and and right now y- you need points. So I'm less worried about getting Bennington right. He had his chance to do that against New Jersey, and he failed. So I, I would stick with Huso for this one, and then I would go back to Bennington on Tuesday against Philly because if I was just looking at this as I've got a starter and I've got a backup goalie, scratch the names out, just look at the situation, that's how I would play my starter versus my backup goalie, and that's how I've got to view this situation right now because I, I think that when, when they decided to go with Huso over the last two games, I think that was their decision, Yeah, um, was, was having Huso be their legit number one goalie for now. We'll get to the lines coming up in about 30 minutes when we get to our BK and Ferrario Rewind. One's got to go. You give us four options. We'll tell you which one's got to go coming up at one. 130. But next, Kylie McDaniel of ESPN.com joins the show. I want to ask him, what about Nolan Gorman reminds him of Max Muncy? And does he think that Gorman's going to have the same struggles early on that Muncy had in his career? We'll talk to Kylie McDaniel about that next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. That's Alex Ferrario. He's Tanner Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kylie. We are broadcasting live from the E&B Granite Studio at the Centene Community Ice Center. And right now, we are going out to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line to be joined by our friend Kylie McDaniel of ESPN.com, where he is both a baseball insider and also a prospects guru. For my money, one of the best in the business at doing it. Kylie, we appreciate the time as always, man. How you doing today? Doing great. Great to be back on the celebrity line. Never been interviewed from a community ice center. Just a lot of stuff going on today. Really excited. <laughs> it, it, it is a lot going on. Uh, all right, Kylie. I wanted to start with a conversation that we had yesterday whenever we saw your article breaking down the top 100 prospects. And we started with Nolan Gorman, who's at number 18 on your list. And I love your comp form. You said, he reminds me of Max Muncy-ish. 
When you say he reminds you of Max Muncie, are you talking about the player that he is currently, how he struggled early on in his career, and it took him a little bit of time to really become the Max Muncie that we know now? What do you mean by Max Muncie-ish in terms of a comp for Nolan Gorman? Well, I mean ish because when you try to like draw comps, you want to do it with guys that have you know at least played in the big leagues in the last couple of years. Ideally, a good big leaguer. Uh, and when you start doing that, you realize like, well, I need a you know left hand hitting infielder that's like you know more power than contact. Maybe draws a few walks, plays third base, and like that specific of a comp basically doesn't exist. And so then I start looking around like, well, who plays like first base and a little second base and has some power? And I'm like, all right, Max Muncy. Like that's you know like if you, if you pick four or five things about him, like at least two or three of them are correct about. Nolan Gorman. Uh, so, yeah, he's like in that area after the Dodgers sprinkled their magic pixie dust on him, like that version of him. I think he can do something like that. Where, where do you, how long, Kylie, do you feel like it is until we get the peak of Nolan Gorman? Because I think a lot of people are expecting that first moment they get to see him, he's going to be that standout stud. But let's be honest, that doesn't happen right away. But do you see him getting to that level quickly or does it, is it going to take some time? So he's one of those guys that's gone pretty quickly through the minors. He was ID'd as early as like sophomore, junior in high school. Uh, typically guys that hit for power in the big leagues take a little bit longer to sort of find their strides. Obviously the most complicated thing to do. It's not just to make contact, it's to make contact hard all the time against a lot of different kinds of pitches. Uh, he's also in the middle of, you know, maybe in the middle, maybe toward the end of learning a different position other than third base. He's played his whole life. So I think he might take a little bit longer than the average guy. It might take a couple hundred at bats, half a season, maybe a full season for him to really hit his stride and be like, all right, this guy can be in the lineup every day. We don't have any reservations. And then, you know, maybe a season or two. Maybe he's, uh, you know, he's 21 and nine months right now. I would say around 24, 25. I think you'll see, all right, he's sitting 20, 25, maybe 30 homers. Like this is like one of the best guys on our team. Like you think you need to be a little bit patient with him. Uh, I'm, I'm not projecting uh, Acuna Soto like Tatis like <laughs> takes the, the league by storm kind of rise. When you look at Nolan Gorman, and this is my final question that I have on him specifically, Kylie, do you think it would be a disservice to him to play him at DH this year? Like the Cardinals are looking kind of internally for their candidates for that spot right now. And it seems like that would be a good spot for him, especially when they've got a gold glove second baseman right now. And you're not moving your first or third baseman off of their spot for Nolan Gorman. Is it okay to have him be a DH in his first season in the big leagues in your mind? Well, if you ask him, I know he would say yes. I got to scout him a little bit. I was covering the West Coast for the Braves, uh, and we were very close to drafting him uh, the, the year that I was out there, and it was his draft year. Uh, I, I know him well enough to know that he has the mental fortitude to handle not playing the field. If, I mean, if you look at it statistically, there is something called the DH penalty where hitters perform less well as hitters when they're DHing because they basically just have to sit and twiddle their thumbs in the dugout the whole game, and they you know hit worse as a result. Um, so long-term, obviously you don't want to do that. It's not what you're getting at, but for one season, can he handle that? Sure. I don't have any problem with him, uh, handling that issue. And like you said, like there's sort of an issue where there's not like a, a gaping hole in the lineup that you need him to walk into. So it's sort of like, you know, a freshman on Alabama or Georgia, you know, playing college football, like, Oh, I'll play special teams and then be the backup here and just get me on the field. However you can, you'll see what I can do. If you're a good player, you'll find a spot and you'll, and you'll stand out. Kylie, that DH effect, could that impact Juan Yepes? And I know a lot of Cardinals fans have talked about Juan Yepes. Our producer, uh, Tanner Hendrickson, uh, is in love with Juan Yepes. He but, says not to go out and sign Nelson Cruz because you got Juan Yepes. Yeah, but I mean, like, if Juan Yepes is sitting around twiddling his thumbs as the DH, could that affect him with the Cardinals this year? 
Well, on the bright side, Juan Yepes, I don't think brings a lot to the table defensively. I think he's a first baseman that you like aren't embarrassed to put at third base, and so I think DH is probably his second best position. That so like whatever you're losing offensively, you're also not putting him on the field. Not that he's terrible, but like you're not trying to get him out on the field. Whereas Gorman can play a couple positions well. He doesn't really play corner outfield, but he can play those pretty well too. Uh, so yeah, Yepes, and Yepes also is not going to be like a you know three to four WAR making fifteen million dollars in free agency kind of guy. So like he's there to fit in the hole that you have, and the hole you have is DH, and you know sort of backing up a couple other positions. So yeah, I think that that fits in pretty well. What are realistic expectations in your mind for Yepes, Kylie? I mean, I think he could hit, you know, 260, you draw a few walks, hit 25 homers. Like, it, I don't know, it seems like every time the Cardinals decide, like, you know, we got Tyler O'Neill, and then you know, we got Harrison Bader, and then here comes Tommy Edmond, and just a bunch of guys that, like, aren't really top 100 guys, aren't, like, the most hyped guys, and just all of them within a year or two are, you know, doing more than you think and really producing. Like, he's in line with those guys talent-wise where he's on a trajectory where he could be an above average everyday player, which at a corner, you know, means 25 homers and making decent contact. I wouldn't necessarily expect that, but like he's basically done everything he can do short of doing that. Would you feel comfortable with him going into the year as your starting designated hitter? Yeah. Uh, I, I would like to have a sort of left-handed compliment. Uh, that's either a bench bat that can fill in there or a guy that's, you know, maybe playing a corner could slide over there. Cause uh, if, if you're not positive about your DH spot, or you're you know, rotating guys that normally play the field, that's where you let them rest. You'd like to have a lefty and a righty option, ideally, or else then all of a sudden, uh, you know, one might not be playing so much. Uh, but yeah, if he's, if he's the main guy, I think you're fine. And also, you know, saving another $12 million uh, that you could spend somewhere else by not getting Nelson Cruz, who, you know, eventually he's going to fall off uh, the edge of the cliff here. Who knows when it'll be? Maybe he'll be 55, but <laughs> it's not going to go on forever. So, so, Kylie, when you talk about the Cardinals' top prospects, you know, Nolan Gorman's there, Jordan Walker's there, and then there's Matthew Libator. And I heard somebody talk about Matthew Libator's potential a couple of days ago, and they talked about how he might not have that ace potential, but he could be a legit peak number two. Do you see that with Matthew Libator, or do you see a potential ace in him? Uh, don't see an ace. Uh, now, to be clear for the, you know, the more casual baseball listener, I define, and I think most scouts and you know front office evaluators define an ace as like eight to twelve guys at any given time. Uh, so obviously, there's not even thirty of them. I think the average fan would assume there's thirty aces. So to say he might not be, I don't think he will be one of the eight to twelve best pitchers in baseball for like multiple years in a row. Because you can, you know, have the twelfth best WAR as a pitcher. I don't think most scouts would call you an ace at that point. You got to do it a couple times. Like there's like two or three guys in the minors that I think actually have a chance to do that. And they're all like in the top, you know, 20 or 30 of this list. And leaving towards a 93, uh, I think two would be sort of a best case scenario. He's basically above average at everything. Like he'll throw a sinker 92 to 94, uh, above average to plus breaking ball, good changeup, throws a slider, throws strikes, big guy, durable lefty has been, you know, he's 22 now, but he's been a guy since he was like 16, 17 out in the Phoenix area drafted out of high school, uh, you know, those sorts of guys tend to overperform as opposed to like, the, you know, the late pop-up college guy that goes in the 12th round and kind of becomes a prospect later. He's done everything he can do. It's just when he was 16, 17, people thought he'd be sitting 96 and would turn into Blake Snell. And now it's like, you know, not quite that. It's a little below that. But, you know, every now and then you'll run into a guy like the most recent ace in baseball that was sort of like this was Cliff Lee. I mean, he was on waivers and was an ace like three years later and was like sitting in the low 90s. And Dallas Keuchel and a Cy Young for an 88 to 91 from the left side. Like this can be done. He has, Libertor has the ability, if he's going to have that kind of pitch ability and being able to make the most out of what he has, he has the tools to do that. It's just one in a thousand guys that does it. And he's you know, near the top of that list, but still unlikely. I think he's probably a number three starter if I had to project him. 
We're talking to Kylie McDaniel, MLB insider and prospects guru for ESPN.com. Give him a follow on Twitter, at KylieMCD. Kylie, I did want to ask you about the top prospect in the system right now, a guy that every Cardinals fan and the Cardinals themselves are unbelievably excited about, and that's Jordan Walker. You look at some of the numbers that they've talked about in terms of the exit velocities that he had uh, down in high A ball last year. It was, it was pretty remarkable in terms of the stuff that he was doing down there. What do you see from him in terms of what he could potentially be? And just out of curiosity, how far away do you think he is from getting up to the big leagues? 19 years old, so it, it feels like he's still a ways away. But once he gets a double A, which doesn't seem that far away from him, he might be closer than I expect. Yeah, I think he'll probably do some combination of high and double A for the majority of this year. And then, yeah, if he continues performing the way he is, then 2023, it's basically how quickly do you want to move him how quickly can he, you know, get thrown in the deep end at AAA and figure it out? Do you need him in the big leagues? Are you going to try to mess with the service time? Like those, those become the questions at that point. Uh, and he would be, you know, basically turning 21 at the time when you'd be considering it, which is essentially as fast as these guys can come, you know, short of being Bryce Harper or Manny Machado. Um, so he's really exciting talent. I think he was actually, he's one of a couple guys that was hurt uh, a lot by the pandemic because he came out of the gates. I mean, he's from the Atlanta area. I think I'm actually zoned to his high school right now. I live in Decatur. He was Decatur High School in the Georgia and the Atlanta area of Georgia. Uh, he was good over the summer. Everybody liked him. Raw power, could hit, played third base. But he had like some questions like, ah, is he going to get too big for third base? Like, he makes contact, but will it be enough contact? And he came out of the gates and looked a little bigger, didn't look like he was a slam dunk third baseman, swung and missed against some kind of mediocre pitching in the first like big event of the spring, and then everything ended. And so he didn't get that chance that a lot of high school guys take advantage of where, you know, maybe, you know, get, gets into playing shape throughout the year, improves uh, defensively at third base, faces some better pitching. Sometimes these guys face kids throwing 78 miles an hour. They swing and miss and they look bad. And they face 90, put a wood bat in their hands. and They look better. He just didn't have a chance to do that stuff. And so he went 21st overall. He very well could have gone 10th or 12th uh, with a full season. And so, as you guys mentioned, the exit velos are insane. Like this is, you know, if it hits perfectly, it might be 30 to 40 home runs. It's still a little iffy at third base, but I, there's a history of guys like this figuring it out. Uh, Austin Riley, Gorman is another one. People didn't think he could play third. Now he's playing second. So I'm not that worried about it. And he was, you know, got promoted to high A and struck out a little bit more, but still held, held, held his head above water as a teenager. So this guy's a chance to be special. I think I ranked him back to back with Gorman. I think thinking he will turn into Gorman is a very reasonable sort of median of expectations, but because of how quickly he hit the ground running, uh, the approach, the raw power, that kind of stuff, he's got more upside, but there's also a chance he goes down that Juan Yepes area and it's a right-handed hitting, probably first baseman, you know, more power than hit, like could be pretty good. Like that's the risk you're taking with ranking this guy that high. He could go down the Gorman track, he could go down the Yepes track, or he could blow both of those guys away and be an all-star. We're talking to Kylie McDaniel for another couple of minutes here on 101 ESPN. Uh, Kylie, the thing that stands out to me about the Cardinal system right now is it's like the anti-Cardinal system from what it's been in years past. They've got two guys that projects to be uh, really big-time power bats in Jordan Walker and Nolan Gorman, and you don't have a ton of pitching that we're talking about, whereas in the past it's been mostly pitchers that they've uh, brought through the ranks. Do you have guys other than Matthew Liberator in the Cardinal system right now that stand out to you as being potentially interesting, even if not stars? 
Uh, yeah, there's two sort of college arms that have been drafted high. Zach Thompson, I think it was two years ago, first-round pick, and then Michael McGreevy was first-round pick last year. I think they're both in the conversation to be maybe third, probably more fourth starters, which is why they're ranked behind Libertor. The guy that I think is exciting behind them is Markevian Hintz. Uh, he goes by Tink Hintz. might see him called that in some places. Yeah. He didn't pitch a lot last year. He was real raw coming out of high school, didn't throw a ton of innings. Uh, they kind of you know took it slow with him last year. But he has one of the cleanest, quickest arms you've seen. Really good athlete, can throw strikes. All the components are here. Chance for two-plus pitches, sits in the mid-90s. But again, it's still pretty early, still a teenager, hasn't gotten out of the complex yet. If you're looking for like uh, an, an interesting, upside, exciting, potential electrifying pitcher, that's your guy. And that, that might be the only guy in the system. There's another guy drafted at high school, your Alec Willis out of Colorado, just big dude throws hard, pretty good breaking ball, a little different kind of guy. Hints has the potential to be a top 100 guy with like 10 or 12 good starts. Like he's thought of that highly, that if he just shows it on the field a little bit, he'll be up in that conversation. Final question that I've got for you, Kylie. What do you find most interesting about the Cardinal system right now? So I mentioned this in the, uh, in the blurb that I wrote for the uh, farm ranking state that went up there, they ranked 14th, uh, where because the Cardinals don't have the biggest payroll, uh, they also like have to have a point of view when it comes to draft and international signings and uh, player development. They can't just do what everybody else is doing because, like, I don't know, fifteen or twenty teams right now are doing a version of, oh, we're going to do like you know the number stuff, like what you know Houston did and now Baltimore's doing and you know Cleveland, Toronto are doing, and like half of those teams, which is essentially a third of the league, uh, are doing like a lame knockoff of it and like are five years behind the smart teams and trying to copy all. Uh, all the Dodgers and, and Giants and Rays sort of influenced teams and just not doing that good of a job and, you know, trying to hold on to their jobs as long as they can. And the Cardinals are doing a totally different thing. Like, there are a lot of teams that were, like, making fun of Michael McGreevy leading into the draft because, like, his fastball shape wasn't the kind of shape that two-thirds of the league is looking for. But the Cardinals have, like, a long track record of looking guys like Luke Weaver that fell to the back of the first round, like Jack Flaherty got to the back of the first round, and finding the guy that is a little underrated. Uh, Gorman and Walker both, you know, slid in the draft. We sort of talked about both of those a little bit for reasons that aren't totally clear. Like, Libertor had, like, not a great first season in uh, in the minors, and then St. Louis picked him up on, on discount, and now he looks like he's going to be, like, a big league, middle-of-the-rotation guy. Ivan Herrera signed for $200,000 out of Panama. Now he's a top 100 prospect. I, and So I think their development, their scouting – like everything they're doing is uh, just unique enough that they're sort of zigging while everyone else is zagging. They're not like sort of falling into these trends. And so, you know, when you talk to a Cardinals executive, you're like, all right, talk to me about McGreevy. And it was like, we think it's the best chance to throw 200 innings in the middle of rotation out of every guy in this draft. It's like, okay, yeah, you tend to be right about these sorts of things and you're doing your own deal. It makes sense that you take a guy that like not every team was doing a backflip for at that point, but like you've been right about guys like this. Do you think their emphasis on defense at the big league level right now, does that kind of play into their ability? Like, I think that was the biggest reason why they signed Steven Matz this season, for example. Like, here with this defense, a ground ball guy who's going to put the ball in play, doesn't have a high strikeout rate, I think he's got a chance to have a lot more success here because of the defense that's behind him. Do you think that also plays into some of their drafting ideas? Yeah, and I also think, uh, I mean, if you talk to these guys and, 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 you know, get the scouting directors, you know, being real honest with you, they'll admit, like, it's really hard to tell, you know, once you get past the first couple of picks to tell this guy apart from that guy. Because, you know, all the fans and fanboys will be like, oh, just take the best available player. It's like, after the first three players, it is not clear who the best available player is. Like, they're all kind of the same. And you got to decide, do you want a guy that makes contact or a guy that might swing and miss and make power? Or do you want, like, a pitcher that's raw or a pitcher that's, you know, polished? And, like, each of these types, you could pick one of them, and it would be, you know, kind of reasonable. And every couple of years, maybe you think you have a point of view, like the Indians sort of famously 
nailed a bunch of college pitchers because they're like, we'll take guys that throw strikes and we'll teach them how to throw hard. And now literally every team is like, oh, it's like sort of like an Indians kind of pick. Like we're, you're, I guess, guardians now. It's like we're taking one of those guys, like a guy that throws strikes. It's like every team thinks they can do this now. There's no value in that kind of guy anymore. So you have to sort of be nimble. And I, I think, you know, we've talked about this in the past, like, uh, the Cardinals were looking at like guys that make contact and guys that throw strikes and are pretty good athletes. That was kind of their type. And I think every couple of years they sort of migrate towards slightly different types as everybody else reacts to what they're doing. So they can kind of have an edge on people. So like, I think once I decide, Hey, this is what the Cardinals are doing. They've probably already moved on to something else. That's interesting. He's Kylie McDaniel. You should read all of his work. It's really excellent over at ESPN.com. Give him a follow on Twitter at Kylie MCD. Kylie, we always enjoy these conversations. Thanks so much for the time today. We look forward to talking with you again soon. Hopefully next time it's about baseball actually taking place on the field. Yeah, but my dog scout sitting here the whole time being very quiet. She says hello as well. <laughs> we appreciate <laughs> That's that. That's successful in itself. That's a good dog right there. Kylie, thanks so much, man. Yeah, they're driving me. Absolutely. That's Kylie McDaniel joining us here on 101 ESPN. Maybe Tanner's right. Maybe Juanya Pez is totally fine that he's your DH this year. Maybe he ended up being right all along. I'm glad that's your takeaway from that interview because my takeaway was what he talked about, Matthew Levator, and I am stressed, sir. Why? He said, at best, you're probably looking at a two, maybe a three starter. That's good, though. I mean, to be fair, I don't think Jack Flaherty's looked at as an ace in Major League Baseball because of I wasn't just expecting him to be history an ace. like that. I wasn't expecting him to be an ace, but like I was hoping like two was like the confidence of what he's going to be. And and but Kylie made it seem like that you're probably more likely around the three number. What if he ends up like he's he's not the same kind of pitcher? I, I want to make that clear. What if he ends up being similar to Lance Lynn? Because Lance Lynn wasn't a number one. He wasn't even probably a number two. I would say for most good teams, they would have viewed him when he was here with the Cardinals, not the guy that he ended up being where he was legit Cy Young candidate. Um, when he was with the Cardinals, I think most teams would have said, ah, solid two to three. If that ends up being what you get out of Matthew Libertor here in St. Louis, is that a success? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're telling me I get Lance Lynn's career with Matthew Libertor, I'm hitting that button. Not, not his career, what he was here in St. Louis. So the first... Oh. Yeah, I don't think so. I, I don't think it is a success. I mean, maybe it is for the Cardinals, but fans aren't going to see it that way. Because his first six years here in St. Louis, he was a guy that consistently threw 175 to 200 innings, and he gave you somewhere most years, other than one outlier year where he was a 275 ERA, most years he was right around a 3-5 ERA. I don't think that's a success in my opinion. See, I would sign up for that. I, 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 I would too. I, I don't think I would. I think I, maybe maybe I'm looking at it differently, but I feel like you need to be talking about – I mean, you need to be talking about a guy who's around three. I, I, those those guys are just I, – I know, but that's the way that they've made it seem with Matthew Libertor. See, I don't know that they've ever talked him up like that. Yeah, I, 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 I think... do feel that way about Gorman. I think they have maybe oversold Gorman a bit. I don't think they've oversold uh, Jordan Walker, but the way they've talked about him, oh, like no, it's yeah. it's very clear they are really high on him, and everybody is really high on Jordan Walker. Dylan Carlson, I think they overhyped just a little bit. I think Carlos, Carlson's a really good player, but they kind of made it seem like he was a potential like MVP Stunt. candidate. Yeah. Um, I just think he's a really good all-around player that every team in baseball could use. Uh, so I do think they sometimes fall into that trap. I don't necessarily feel that way, actually, though, about their – um, the way that they have hyped up or really the lack thereof with Libertor. Yeah, I don't think Libertor got really hyped up by the organization. I think fans more and more hyped him because up because of, Rosa of Rosa Arena. Rosa Arena. And I think that's where we kind of get that view on him because 
I look at him. I, I think he could reach that number two spot because I've seen some of the videos of his like breaking ball. I think his breaking stuff actually looks really good when you look at his video. Maybe that fastball doesn't have the life to it, but if he gives you Lance Lynn type numbers, I don't think that's a fa- I don't think that's a failure. I mean, if you have a bunch of like two three solid pitchers in this on this team with if they're going to continue to build a defense like that. We're going to be talking about them like they are, like high number twos, number ones, because they're going to be built up by the way the defense plays behind them. So I don't have an issue if that's what the comp is for Matthew Libertor. I just I, I feel like that if Matthew Libertor isn't the clear best pitcher in your organization, I just what happens after Jack Flaherty? And that's what I think I'd be starting to get concerned about because every, I don't know if they've overhyped him, but everyone's opinion has been, well, let Jack Flaherty walk because you have Matthew Libertor. Oh, I – I I don't know how many people have that. I opinion. feel like Cardinals fans have looked at it that way. Let Jack Flaherty walk. You got Matthew Libator who can take over. And I feel like the Cardinals have a significant drop off after Jack Flaherty. And if Matthew Libator can't fill some of that void, I just I don't know where you stand. Like it seems like it seems like you have a lot of three, four pitchers for your rotation. And maybe that's good enough because of the defense. I just I feel like I just feel like with Matthew Libator it felt like the Cardinals viewed it as we're getting a guy who can kind of continue that trend of of big-time prospects that turn into something for us. And it just, I don't know, it scares me a little bit to hear the fact that this guy's middle-of-the-pack, mid-tier rotation guy. Who was the, in your guys' opinion, Tanner, who do you think was the number one starter for the Braves last year? Like, Was it Max Freed? Was it Ian Anderson? Was it Charlie Morton? And would you classify any of them as like legitimate at this point in time number one starters for a contender? Because no. I, I, I feel like Max wouldn't. Freed was. I feel like Max Freed was their number one. I starter. don't. I mean, he may have been their number one, but their I don't view him as an ace. I oh, no, he's not viewed as an ace, and that's the misconception. And I'm glad Kylie cleared that up. Like, there aren't thirty aces in Major League Baseball. You have probably eight aces in Major League Baseball. Max- Everyone's got a number one. Max Fried is a three three five ERA so far in his career. Like that's not that far off from what we're talking about with Liberator, and that that's why like when you when you talk I would feel about, better about that with Matthew Liberator. You said three five with Lance Lynn. I, that, that that's not that's good not for far, me. Three three five is like that's an like, extra like run two, every like five extra, starts. Yeah, it's like an extra <laughs> start and two earned runs added on to it. I, I don't know. I I just. Uh, I'm thinking three around three for Matthew Libator, and if it's not there, I just feel like you're missing something. That's fair. Hey, hey man, I, I think there are certainly a lot of Cardinals fans that are right there with you on this. Uh, I do think he gave me a lot of confidence. If you could get this year, if you're looking at a 260 hitter with 25 home runs from Juan Yepes, sign me up right now and start him every day at DH. Forget that old like, guy, Nelson Cruz. I, I'm with you. If you could save the $12 million there, and you could put that towards something else, and you can get 25 homers and a 260 batting average from Juan Yepes this year, I'm in. Totally in. Sign me up for that. Um, if you're talking about Nolan Gorman potentially coming up this year, and maybe he hits you 15 home runs, he goes through some of his slumps, but he's going to be a solid guy that can rotate in at DH or second base for you by, I don't know, early June, sign me up. I'm here for that as well. The other thing that this gets me really excited about, guys, think about this lineup like two years from now, if you've got Jordan Walker ready to make his debut at that point in time. You're going to have Paul Goldschmidt. You'll have, let's say it's Nolan Gorman starting at second base, and at that point in time, you've got Tommy Edmond kind of as a utility guy. You're going to have Nolan Arenado at third. You've got Tyler O'Neill in left. You've got Jordan Walker probably as your DH at that point in time, maybe working his way into the corner outfield as well, potentially playing a little bit of first base. You'll have Dylan Carlson, who should be coming into his own at fully formed 
The only questions that you've really got, catcher, shortstop, and center field, all three of which are defense-first primary positions. And you've got potentially Harrison Bader playing out. You've got Yvonne Herrera that's Mm -hmm. essentially coming up in that spot too. I mean, that is one, two, three, four, five, six guys that could project project to be 25-plus home run hitters. And if those guys hit their potential, and I think 2024 is about that year that you're going to start to see Gorman and Walker kind of hitting, starting to get closer to the potential that we've seen in these, like, these breakdowns of them for their potential. I mean, you're talking about a lineup that's, it doesn't have the star power that the MV3 had in 04, but I think it might be deeper than the lineup that the MV3 had in 2004 when they went on that run. Boy, that's saying something, especially when you think of that 2014 where not just MV3, but you had uh, Edgar Renteria on that team. You had Larry Walker on that team. Like that was a deep freaking roster. This is starting to look like a, a team that can contend. Like that, that for for something seriously meaningful, if and you've got those guys run. all, yeah, and, and also Carlson would be on his rookie deal at that point in time. Gorman rookie deal at that point in time. Jordan Walker rookie deal at that point in time. You've got the same salary going to Goldie and Arenado, and Goldie's uh, contract would be coming off of the books. What if soon Arenado thereafter. opts out? The only guy that you would have to pay from that group is Tyler O'Neill, and I think they're going to be able to get that thing done because they they they've clearly value him in a big big way. Yep. Coming up next, let's get to one got to go. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. You give us four options. We will tell you which one's got to go as we wrap things up here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. This is PK and Ferrario. Time now for One's Gotta Go. We offer up the talking points, and you get to pick which one's gotta go on 101 ESPN. That's Alex Ferrario. He's Tanner Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kylie. If you missed anything from today's show, be sure to check out the podcast, page101ESPN.com. The free 101 ESPN app is where you find it. We had a great conversation earlier today with Mike McKenna, former NHL goalie, about what's going into some of these slow starts for the Blues. You can check that out and our conversation with Kylie McDaniel, who said that he believes this year he would be comfortable with Juan Yepes is the DH for the Cardinals. Believes he could be a 260 hitter with 20 to 25 home run power. So all of that on the podcast page right now. But it is time for One's Gotta Go. You give us four options. We will tell you which one's gotta go. Let's start with this one, boys. One Gotta Go, St. Louis Prospect Edition. Scott Perunovich, Jake Neighbors, Nolan Gorman, or Jordan Walker. Which one's gotta go? Perunovich, Neighbors, Gorman, or Walker. Uh, I'm going to say Scott Perunovich because I think you already have a Scott Perunovich on your team with Tori Krug, and I just don't know where the other Scott Perunovich fits. Maybe I'm off on this, but I'm not getting rid of Jordan Walker. If Nolan Gorman truly is Max Muncy, that's incredible. Um, And I think Jake Neighbors is going to be very impactful for this team within the next couple of years. So I'd get, I'd say uh, Scott Pernovich has to go. Yeah, I'm basically with you, and, and it's the same reason you said it. It's Scott Pernovich, just because I feel like I have him on my team and Tori Krug. I think we're all on the same page here. I do wonder, Jake Neighbors, I, I'm very curious to find out what his role is going to be next year because he's clearly going to be with the NHL roster. He damn near was this year. I, I wonder if the team told him, one, you want to go get more offense, but I, I wonder if they told him in the offseason, put, put, some, put some muscle on Get a little bit bigger. 
because you're a power forward for us. You're a Braden Shen for us. You're going to park yourself in front of the net, and you're going to score goals with some talent. That's where I think they look at Jake Neighbors. But, again, I think other teams looking at Jake Neighbors probably views a bottom six forward. I think on this team, you're probably looking at a top three winger. I think he's your third line left winger next year. I, I think that's where he's probably going to find himself, at least to start out the year. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a really good start for him. I mean, that's that's above where Barbie was when he first got his crack into the NHL. Logan line. Brown will be a centerman. Logan Brown might not be a healthy guy in or in in the healthy. Are you wishing on lineup on this individual? He's going to be a healthy scratch next year. Is what I'm trying Whoa. to say. Six five seven eight zero is the air comfort service X line for one's got to go. One got to go bullpen edition for the Cardinals. Hennessy Cabrera. A healthy version of Jordan Hicks, Giovanni Gallegos, or Alex Reyes. Which one's got to go Cardinals bullpen edition? T-Bone, you start this one. I think it's got to be Alex Reyes because Henesis Cabrera, when he's right, I I comped him early last season that he could be like the Cardinals version of Andrew Miller when he was right with the Cleveland Indians back in like that 2015 run. I love the stuff Gallegos has, even though he doesn't throw necessarily hard. Jordan Hicks, when he was healthy and was right, his stuff was unhittable. Alex Reyes, we've only seen a quick flash in the pan of it. I think it's basically between him and Jordan Hicks. I think Hicks' stuff was better when he was healthy than what I've seen from Alex Reyes so far. Yeah, that's where I'm at with this one. Part of me wonders with Jordan Hicks, but you said a healthy Jordan Hicks, and a healthy Jordan Hicks to me is a dominant pitcher for this team. I just I, I just don't know with Alex Reyes. I just don't know what the potential is there. So I think he would be the one that has to go, in my opinion. Did you know that Jordan Hicks in his career is only striking out 22% of the batters that he faces? He actually does not have a good strikeout rate. Meanwhile, last year, when you're looking at what Alex Reyes was at, he was at 30%. And I know Alex Reyes has a walk issue. He's at 15% for his career. Did you know, by, by the way, that Jordan Hicks at 13.5% in his career? Very similar pitchers. Alex Reyes, in my mind, I actually disagree with you guys a little bit. I think Reyes has slightly better stuff, so I will keep Reyes. I will say that Jordan Hicks is the one that's got to go for me, but slightly I do think better, it's close. Slightly better stuff, but if when it's not in the strike zone, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, the problem, problem same issue for uh, for Jordan Hicks. You bite your tongue, sir. One's got to go. Social media edition. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok. Are we all on the same page here? TikTok's got to be the one I that's go. Even yeah, like TikTok. I've never gotten into TikTok. I don't even have a TikTok account. My body don't move like that. I can't be a TikTok star. It's not the reason that I was going to go with that oh, one, but okay. Hey, okay. Sorry. Honestly, though, we were Facebook all on the same probably page would there. be a close number two. I, I feel like you use Facebook a decent amount. I do, I mean, see, I, I do see you post a lot on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, I post pictures of my daughter, but it's like, okay, I don't I mean, really use it other than that. I can't do that. So. I mean, honestly, <laughs> it, well, no, you can't do that, sir. Honestly, I don't. Yeah, Facebook would be a close number two, but TikTok's yeah. got to go. It's just, that, it's that's ridiculous. easy. I, I think we can go ahead and sweep that We've agreed one. agreed on all. Th- oh, no, we didn't. You didn't like the Reyes one yeah. because you're you're not smart. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. Perfect way to finish off the show today. Amen. Appreciate all of you for listening. If you need anything to listen to over the weekend, check out the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, the free 101 ESPN app. We'll be back on Monday at 11, the fast lane coming up next. He's a player. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.